Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. In a sudden flash, it all comes clear. It's a eureka moment, an epiphany. Hi, I'm Marcus Smith, host of the Constant Wonder podcast. The world offers marvel, meaning, and mystery around every single corner. In nature, art, science, culture, history, we talk everything from bees and beetles to obelisks and asteroids. Experience the thrill of transformative encounter. We'll bring more wonder to your day. Listen to Constant Wonder wherever you get your podcasts. Hello and welcome to this week's Down the Pub. Uh, we've decided to stay weekly till at least Christmas for your benefit now, including a Christmas special where we will help rescue you on Boxing Day from everybody that you're fed up spending time with in your little free household bubble. Uh, who's in tonight? We've got Marcus is doing a little Christmas dance in the corner there. You all right, Marcus? I'm very good, thanks. Despite being in tier three next week, I'm happy. I, I think this one's was my shout. So um, yeah, bring, bring some women to History Hack because we've got Quite a lot of lovely ladies in the Down the Pub uh, team, so it's nice to, to represent. It's good. Indeed. We are going to do uh, Scandalous Women. And by that, I, when, there's not going to be any slut-shaming going on here. Uh, I think we're going to celebrate uh, Scandalous Women, um, but probably there's going to be quite a lot of slutty behaviour in there because it's us and any excuse. Uh, <laughs> Marcus is dressed, which is a blessing for furlough, and also Beth is wearing clothes. Beth. Yeah, I'm back, back to my normal self, so... Much happier. I've been at work as well this week, which was a shock to the system again. But yeah, hit the ground running quite literally. Clarify for everyone that you dyed your hair purple and that COVID didn't turn it purple. That is correct. It was a a reckless choice, but uh, a good choice. I'm I'm happy with it. (laughs) Uh, Lockie's dressed up tonight. You're right, Lockie. Yes, um, for Clive's benefit. Uh, I didn't think he had enough. Fellas wearing white or light blue shirts in his life, so I've done that. No, actually, I had to be presentable earlier today, so I just haven't changed. Oh, uh, okay. Well, we thought it, oh, I thought it was to improve uh, to impress Mrs. Clive because Mrs. Clive is known for thinking that we're a bunch of reprobates that are obsessed with smarty humour, which I don't know where she got <laughs> that idea from. Um, but now we're reprobates uh, obsessed with smarty humour, wearing collars in some cases. So woo-hoo. we also have Kit with us. It's five a.m. in Kit Land, right, Kit? I'm tired. I want to go back to bed. Kids put his camera on. It's not a pretty sight. It is 5am, to be fair to you. How is South Korea treating you? Yeah, it's nice. I mean, it's cold. It's it's The weather's turned. And I'm back in Seoul and it's winter. Um, so it's a bit nippy here. And you uh, have run out of tourist things to do, right? Yeah, I'm just kind of wandering around the streets now. Um, I'm supposed to be writing this damn book, so it's probably a good thing, but... The problem is they've gone into lockdown again. So um, there's been 100 cases nationally. And so Korea has gone into sort of semi-lockdown. And you can't sit into coffee shops anymore. You've, you can only get a takeout. And the tube stops at about 11 p.m. And restaurants have to close at 9. That's the lockdown. I love it. The kit train rolls on. Uh, we have Dawn with us as well. 
Dorman's dressed up tonight as well. You all right? Yeah, I'm good. I'm good. Um, you know, lockdown continues and uh, I'm absolutely prepared for tonight's episode. There's no panic writing taking place in the slightest. <laughs> uh, yeah, what is the scenario in Ireland? Because obviously we come out of lockdown next week. What's going on there? So we have a five-tier system um, because we know how to take things seriously. And we are currently in tier five, although for December we've told COVID that we're going to be good and it might go away. So we're going to get maybe tier three, which means you can see your family, but for 15 minutes or something. I don't know. Shops are opening. That's the, that's the important thing. And I can go outside again. So. Woo! Zach. Zach is not wearing a shirt and collar today. Zach's I'm not. I'm letting the slumber. side down, mate. You're basically in your pajamas. Pretty well, not quite. I, mean, I haven't quite broken really... out the the Disney onesie yet. Presumably, <laughs> all, all Zach's shirts are in his washing machine still. <laughs> yeah, the washing machine refusing to give them back. Being held hostage now. It's not going well. <laughs> How is the washing machine this week? Still been a twat. <laughs> <laughs> Don't talk about your. Made a smell halfway. Uh, halfway through. A low spin wash, like I'm going to burn your house down just because I feel like it. So um, we're still not friends. <laughs> I love it. it is literally like a marriage heading for a disgustingly messy divorce. It's great. I love hearing. We'll be amazed if it lasts until Christmas. <laughs> we also have Alina is in the house, but she's eating pizza. Are you all right, Alina? Oh, I love the pizza, man. Well, happy. Yeah, you've earned your pizza. Congratulations. Thank you very, very much. Very she happy. may announce on Twitter why she's happy at a certain point, but uh, before anyone goes <laughs> rushing out, she's not pregnant. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for that. Just thought I'd clarify before Twitter goes into meltdown. Uh, James is with us as well. James is not allowed to return to Villa Park. Uh, it's nothing to do with COVID. It's the government doing you all a favour, James. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh... Yeah, so originally, obviously, we were all meant to come out of lockdown. So I've been trying to sort stuff for our kitchen, which is meant to be being done. Um, but now with this new tier system, we have no idea. So Yeah, because you're yeah. all diseased and nasty in Birmingham and not allowed to do anything and nothing's changing for you. Is that right? Uh, pretty much, yeah. It's like a two-week review and then hopefully they open us up for Christmas. Do you need a washing machine? I know a guy. <laughs> <laughs> Charlie's with us as well. Charlie, how is Bedford? It's all right. We're in tier two, so I can go to Primark if I want to, but the pubs are all fucked. So uh yeah, I'm not very happy about it. So I've I've comforted myself by wearing my giant Captain Sensible style jumper. Um totally letting the side down on the glamour front. But uh yeah, it's all good here. So tier two, guys, does that mean the pubs are open, but only the ones if you're eating a meal and stuff? Is that what that yeah. is? Weatherspoons. Yeah. Weatherspoons. And you can go outside, can't you? You can drink outside with up to six people. Oh, we have that as well. Yeah. Or we had that. Pubs you can do that up. in tier three as well, but the, it's like everything's shut except for takeaway and delivery. Yeah, outside drinks in uh, Britain and Ireland in December. Great. That's going to work. Has anyone got like this outdoor patio business? I want to set up a warehouse and just rent them out. Thousand pounds a night. I did look at them this week. You can buy them for about 130 quid. I'm going to make a monopoly on that. (laughs) Excellent. Uh, Who have we not introduced yet? We do it. Clive, we haven't introduced you yet, have we? Clive is with his porno lighting in the background. Yeah, so this week 
my wife asked me what, what we were discussing, so I told her, and she said to me, why does it always have to be about sex? Did you tell her my response, because no one's getting any? <laughs> no, I didn't tell her that. <laughs> I might have given her ideas. <laughs> <laughs> oh, Clive. Right, OK, Clive, brilliantly, uh, I love it. Clive tweeted the group earlier, uh, earlier this week saying that he had a fantastic one and he was going to win this week, and Lockie's response was, oh, I'd ever green tweet from Clive, because he tweets that every week and then doesn't <laughs> win. But he might stand a chance today, because Alina's judging with Holmes and Johnny is having to adult, the lesser spotted Johnny Dyer. Uh, Holmes, how are you doing? I'm not too bad. I mean, I, I couldn't be bothered to put a shirt on for Clive's benefit, but I did. I had baked beans for tea. I was having a toddler's tea, basically. And I, I did spill some down my tracksuit bottoms, but I did change my trousers to try and maintain some level of glamour on this podcast tonight. Has your day not been a horrific saga of trying to find a turkey? Well, we had a spot of that tonight. There seems to be only turkeys left that will feed about groups of 48, um, which obviously that's not us. I guess people are sort of panic buying turkeys for bubbles of three families, aren't they? I think that's probably what's caused it. Uh, okay, yeah. So all of the massive ones, people have no use for them, do they? Yeah. Chris, as well, birthday boy Chris, who was forty yesterday. Hurrah! Happy birthday! Yes, thanks. I've started on the rum as well. Oh, uh, we did. We sent you some Peaky Blinders rum because we could not face watching you drink Korean drain cleaner. Again, because you were basically going blind last week throughout the podcast, and it was a little bit disturbing. Uh, did you have a nice birthday? Uh, yeah, yeah, th- thanks. Um, couldn't do anything. Uh, just sat around, played on the Xbox, and ate pizza. So yeah, it's pretty good. Sounds awesome. And you've got the kids this weekend, right? Yeah, yeah. I had I've had them for the last three days as well. Um, I got them for for the week. So that was good. Well, that's better than nothing then. Uh, and we will go out and get trust with you when this is all over. Can we, and we nice have to, can we stop being nice to Chris now? Because his part, Kent, has just destroyed the rest of us. And he's not forgiven. <laughs> okay, his birthday is officially over. <laughs> over. Now. Destroyed. Now. Yes. <laughs> he's in the same camp with Napoleon Bonaparte in my books. <laughs> Midway. <laughs> Midway. Unrequited love. <laughs> the more I hate them, the more I love them. Mm-hmm. And we have Kate in sunny Spain. Is it sunny? No, it's pouring with rain and thundering and freezing cold all week. It's horrible. Oh, good. That makes the rest of us feel better. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm in my pyjamas. So, yeah, no glamour here, I'm afraid. Excellent. All right. OK, let's get started. Have I introduced everybody? Wave now or forever hold your peace. OK, we are going to do Scandalous Women, as we said today, Uh not from the sense of just slut shaming a load of women. I picked one who actually is scandalous and I went out of my way to find one that had nothing to do with sex. Uh, but it is us, so undoubtedly there will be lots of sex. And we are going to redress the balance eventually and do um, a scandalous bugger one and do the blokes as well. But we start with the women because we wanted to do a podcast dedicated to some feisty women tonight. Uh, Alina is going to judge with Holmes. And where are we going to start um, I'm tempted to be really mean and make Clive go first, but I'm going to let him. I'm going to let him build anticipation. Let's go with who never goes first. Lock. Ah. Yeah, right. I think I've started once ever. I'm usually I'm usually half pissed by the time I speak, so um, this, this is a novel. Thing. Um, 
Mine's great. I'm I'm well out of my lane on this one. Um, there's there's no first war. No, actually, it's not true. There is a slight small connection with First World War battlefields, um, and it's, it's going to be a see if you spot it because we're going back to the um, the late 17th, early 18th century. Uh, France as well. Those guys. Um, Julie Daubigny is um, the the subject of my conversation. La Maupin. She was known as um, her. She was born in 1673. Um, her dad was a, some sort of secretary to King Louis XIV's Master of Horse, uh, the Duke of Armagnac, um, which is a boozy name, which I quite liked. Um, her dad trained some of the court pages, uh, and so Julie sort of learned with them uh, dancing, reading, drawing, and crucially, fencing. Um, uh, this is going to play quite some significant part in her life. She would um, train dressed as a boy uh, as well, which also kind of plays a part in her uh, life moving forward. Um, she starts young um, in the sense that she becomes the mistress to her dad's boss, uh, Duke of Armagnac, aged about 14 uh, or so. Um, Armagnac kind of wants her around um, so he kind of needs her to get married for some sort of stability. So she arranged for him to marry some total fop, um, who, uh, the Sieur de Maupin, uh, and arranges for that marriage to take place. And then the following day dispatches Maupin off to the south of France, where he can be absolutely nowhere near any of them. Um, which is tremendous. Um, trouble is, Julie gets a bit bored actually with Armagnac, uh, with Armagnac, falls in with some fencing instructor. And uh, with him for a little bit, um, this fella actually kills someone in an illegal duel. Uh, and so they leg it. The pair of them run off to the south of France, um, uh, sort of paying their way as they go by sort of doing fencing demonstrations. And um, she's obviously very good. And um, there, there are a number of instances where someone says, oh, that's not, that's not a girl, that's a boy. That's training, and she she proves it quite convincingly that she is female um, by undressing, uh, which is pretty lively. She's still only about fifteen uh, by this stage, but down to Marseille she goes um, with this fencing instructor, and there she gets into singing, which it turns out she's pretty good at. She gets into opera singing and lights up uh, Marseille for a bit, and lights up someone else's uh, life as well. Um, uh, an unnamed woman who I can yeah quite quite a young woman. Um, manages to get introduced to Julie uh, and they fall in love, um, which is very nice, except that it's um, the 17th century and the family of this young woman is totally scandalised and so they send this uh, their daughter off to a convent. Julie's not very happy with this, so she tracks um, the convent down, heads off over there and manages to smuggle herself in around the death of one of the sisters uh, at the convent. Um, has some, some, something to do with the, with the funeral party. They plan their escape. Uh, this they concoct by stealing the body of the nun, sneaking it into her girlfriend's bed and then burning the fucking convent down. Um, which they do reasonably successfully and then leg it. And, um, you know, whether they're sort of rumbled at the time or give themselves away somehow, um, it, it becomes clear that they were responsible. And so they're on the run for about three months, during which time I think girlfriend gets a bit pissed off and heads home and, and, and Julie continues on her, um, uh, travels through France, uh, dressed as 
uh, a young man. Um, she has a few fights along the way. Um, the, the sort of pattern with her life is someone gets offended by something she says, properly challenges to a duel, the, her to a duel, and she kicks his ass. Um, that happens quite a bit. Uh, you've got the Comte d'Albert, um, as in Albert on the Somme. Um, she gave him a kick in, uh, but then they became friends, which is uh, quite nice. Um, she got a new boyfriend and went back to Paris, uh, manages to go back to her old boyfriend briefly to get a pardon. Uh, talks to Armagnac, says, can you, can you sort out my pardon for burning down that convent, please? Which he does. So she's got a clean slate to go back to Paris and get into normal life. And she starts her singing there. Lights up the opera in Paris. She's a huge deal, 1690 to 1694. She's in all the opera's major productions. She is huge. And then there's Scandal. Uh, again, she turns up at a court ball dressed in men's clothes, um, kisses a woman on the dance floor. Three men on the dance floor are outraged beyond belief and call her out on the spot. She says, well, she shrugs her shoulders, sort of cracks her knuckles and says, all right, then three of you outside, let's go. Beats them all up uh, and then has to leg it because King Louis has made fencing illegal. So she disappears off to Brussels. And just to keep it relatively brief, because it goes on and on, she uh, gets involved with the Elector of Bavaria, who's in Brussels for some reason. He realises she's a nutcase and pays her 40,000 francs to piss off, which she did without taking the money. She went off then to Madrid, ends up working for some countess in Madrid. Madrid, who she gets totally fed up with, and so does her hair one night, ready for a grand ball, by, by clapping lots of radishes into it, um, which she can't see, but everyone else at the ball cads, which is basically the Baroque equivalent of, of having a dick shaved in the back of your hair or something like that. Um, she ends up going back to Paris, getting pardoned again. Um, she introduces contralto singing to, to French opera, falls in love with another woman. And this one's the big one for her because they clear off to uh, Paris. And apparently this is the most beautiful woman in France, the Marquise de Fransac. Um, and they live in Brussels for a few years very happily until uh, the Marquise actually dies of some illness. And, and Julie, poor Julie is beside herself by this point, checks herself into a convent where she dies quite soon afterwards, uh, aged about 33. So she lived fast, died young, caused scandals, fought, flashed, sang and shagged away around Europe, uh, cheated death sentences a couple of times, was totally scandalous and utterly marvellous. She sounds like a right laugh. I like her. Holmes, what do you think? No, she was good. I liked her as, as a character. I mean, it's good to see that... the. French had moved on slightly from the time of Joan of Arc, where I think Joan of Arc, one of the charges against her that was, was that she wore trousers. <laughs> so they'd moved on slightly. That dressing as a boy was no problem. I, I quite liked I was expecting a bigger fall, though. It just seemed to be a series of quite consistent scrapes. Well, I mean, falling in love, I think, was the big one. The, the, the big fall in love, which then ruined her um, to the point where she could continue in society no more. That's pretty big. What's worse than a heartbreak? Quite a few times, didn't she? Well, those those other ones weren't that serious, were they? And then what what happened? You told it very well. What happened to the fencing instructor? He just sort of dropped out the story. Yeah, well, more to the point, what happened to her husband? Um, <laughs> she, she was married, wasn't she? Um, uh, I, I, when she was on the run, um, the actual name on the warrant was her husband's rather than his. So I've got half a feeling that her husband got punished for losing control of his wife. That he, he never saw after, after the wedding day. 
if I was on the run and lying low, I wouldn't stop at every town and do some sort of demonstration in public. I don't think. No, possibly. Well, I think that was that came. That's why they find um, you in the hunted. You've got to hide in plain sight. <laughs> That's exactly what they want us to think. Yeah. No, I quite liked her. She was quite good, and she she um she travelled 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 around, covered quite a bit of ground, saw some cities. Yeah, indeed, and and caused outrage in just about all of them as well. I mean, is it entirely true? I mean, as true as any of these that I could uh, that, that we may hear tonight. I dare say. Um, I've heard. I've, I tracked down a couple of different accounts, and um, from from building them all together, I, I, I put together the the narrative that I believe to be most likely. Fair enough. I still don't think they would have battered an eyelid in Croydon on a night out, though. She'd have just like moulded in, wouldn't she, to everybody else? She wouldn't have had to keep going back to get pardoned if she, if it happened in Croydon. I wouldn't have thought. No, this she, is she'd true. have had enough people to fight in Croydon. I think. <laughs> <laughs> Alina, oh, I love her. She's such a badass bitch. I just, I think we're going to get a reoccurring theme today, aren't we? Of you wanting to be all of these women. Yeah, totally. I mean, well, the one thing I'm, I, I do want to know: does, does she actually end up killing anyone? Don't know. I don't know what the death toll from the from the convent fire um, was. So, what um, you're saying is, you want a death toll, Alina? Well. <laughs> That's the only thing that was sort of missing from this story. You know, she tragically stabs someone in the face and, you know, blood spurts everywhere and then she runs away or something. I don't know. Also, I thought I thought when Lockie started talking about the, the convent part, I thought she was going to do like a really early early weekend at Bernie's and just walk out <laughs> the, body the, the body of the dead sister. I didn't quite <laughs> understand why they had to put it in a bed and set fire to everything. Oh, because to make, to make it look like her girlfriend had died in the fire and they wouldn't, you know, they wouldn't chase around anymore. Ah, uh, fair Japes. enough. Japes. <laughs> Just for shits and giggles. Lols. <laughs> what? I think that's a really, I think that's a really good start there. Uh, let's go to, let's do Chris before he really lays into the rum. <laughs> well, like I said the other day, um, last week I brought you the Gillingham FC of, um, uh, sexcapades this week I'm bringing you Margate of Scandalous Women um, she's not as badass as Lockie's unfortunately so um, uh, she was born uh, Elizabeth uh, Gustav's daughter was born in Sweden uh, in, near Gothenburg in uh, on the 27th of the 11th 1843 uh, had a rural upbringing um, at 16 years old she uh, moved to Gothen- Gothenburg to work as a uh, domestic servant uh, where she had a, held down a job for five years and then probably lost it because she was arrested for prostitution in uh, March 1865. Uh, April 1865, she gave birth to a stillborn daughter, but managed to get another domestic job. Um, a few years later, in um, 1866, uh, she uses her inheritance from her mother's death to move to England, uh, where she tells people that she's got a job working as a domestic servant for a gentleman and or going to see relatives, depending on who you spoke to. Um, and she moved over uh, quite successfully, learned how to speak English and uh, Yiddish um, quite fluently, as well as her native Swedish. Um, in 1869, uh, she married a uh, ship's carpenter uh, from Sheerness called John Stride and became Elizabeth Stride which might be the name you, you recognise. Um, she was also known as Long Liz. 
um, because of um, not because of her height. She was only five foot two. Anyway, um, they ran a, a small coffee shop in the East India uh, um, East India Dock. Um, but her marriage soon broke down in 1874, and in um, 1877 her husband died in a Poplar Workhouse. No, 1844, sorry. He, she was in the workhouse in 1877 when they briefly split up. She then um, begins to tell people after 1878 um, that um, she had been involved uh, on the sinking of the Princess Alice in the Thames, uh, which was a, a famous... Um, I had to get boats in here somewhere. Um, there was a famous shipping disaster where a, col- a collier rammed a pleasure, line, pleasure boat going down the Thames and... Um, about 527 people were drowned um, when the ship went down. And she liked to tell people that uh, she had been, um, she climbed up the mast as the sinking Princess Alice um, and was kicked in the face, which is why she lost her two front teeth and split her palate, which left her with a permanent stutter. She also claimed that her husband and two of her nine children died that day on the, on the sinking ship. Uh, none of which is true. And this is, where I start to build my case in 1885, she started going out with a uh, dock worker called Michael Kidney. Now her and Kidney had a very uh, dicey relationship in the, it came out after um, that in the three years that they were together, uh, she spent five months separate from him. Um, In 1887, she also filed uh, an assault claim against him that he um, had battered her. Um, it went to trial. She failed to turn up. And um, Kidney would later say that she only ever left him when she'd been drinking. In 18, September 30th, 1888, well, uh, about one o'clock in the morning, uh, Louis Dimshitz, who was um, trying to... <laughs> the whole, <laughs> good name. whole room collapses into giggles. <laughs> <clears throat> I'm sure it's, uh, it could be my pronunciation um, was trying to um, park his uh, wagon and pony in um, Berners Yard in Whitechapel when he saw something on the floor um, he lit a match, couldn't see anything went into the uh, Socialist Workmen's Club which was having a bit of a sing-along in the next uh, building came back with some candles and some other people and they found Elizabeth Stride very, very dead with her throat cut from the uh, left to right. They ran off to find the police, and she became known as one of the victims of Jack the Ripper. The scandal bit is coming up. Do bear with me with this. It's very tenuous. Um, because of it, on the 1st of October, a letter arrived saying that um, cl- claiming that they had uh, committed the double event, because on the same night, uh, Catherine Eddowes was uh, brutally, brutally murdered, and her body mutilated, intestines pulled out and that sort of thing. Um, and so they often go, a lot of ripperologists will say, well, she's clear, Elizabeth Stride was clearly this, this, the other victim and that there, this was the double, so-called double event. And the big scandal is there's a few, few, few people who, and I'm one of them, believe that's not the case. I hold that Michael Kid- that Kidney actually killed her. And this will upset a lot of ripperologists, which is what I'm hoping will tenuously is the scandal. <laughs> um, because at 12.45, about 15, 20 minutes before her body was found, Israel Schwartz uh, was walking along Burner Street when he saw uh, a woman at the entrance of Duffield Yard 
and a man stepped to talk, talk to her uh, before grabbing her and throwing her on the floor. He thinking, oh God, here comes a domestic, has decided to cross the road. As he did so, he noticed that there was a second man present lighting a, lighting a pipe. And the first man looked up and shouted Lipsky, which is, was considered to be an uh, anti-Semitic um, term, aimed possibly at um, Schwartz, who decided it was time to skedaddle. The Ripper worked alone. So who was the second person? The other thing is uh, the body had been found, had been laying on the ground. For, she, there was 15 minutes between her being seen, last seen by Schwartz and other people, and the body being found by Demschutz. Well, in the half hour um, between Catherine Eddowes being last seen and um, uh, the body being discovered by the police and um, Annie Chapman, who was before him, he'd actually managed to do a lot, lot more. This was just a simple slice. Um, but Kidney would later would be interviewed by the police and was consider, um, considered to be quite upset. He told them that if he ran the police, he'd be able to find this person very quickly, but demurred on how he'd be able to do it he would later turn to alcoholism uh and again uh turn up at workhouses with uh, syphilis a few times over the next few years um i would argue that it would actually seem that he was they she was in an abusive relationship this person and that every time she kept going back to him because she loved him and he would try and change and then it would happen and happen and um five days before um her death she had left the house again, claiming that she'd had an argument with him, which he then denied. So I would argue that he 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 was the one that murdered her, and uh, it wasn't the Ripper. And I'm going to hold that's the scandal because there's going to be a lot of Ripperologists who go, "What?" I kind of like that. You've done a different interpretation of the word scandal there, which is all good because we didn't actually define. Um, Alina's trying to claim the Ripper for Poland in the chat. It was the Polish <laughs> guy. Um. <laughs> no one knows. Nothing changes. Alina, apart from trying to claim the Ripper for Poland. I thought it was the Polish guy, Polish butcher or I don't know, whatever. I'm not very good at the Jack the Ripper stuff, but wasn't it a it's, Polish if butcher? It's Kuzminski, if it's Kuzminski you're talking about, he's a barber, wasn't he? And mad as a yeah. box of frogs. Whatever the Polish guy is, the Polish guy did it. Lockie, you have to delve into Ripperology for your London tours, don't you? Yeah, I do. And it's definitely, definitely the sketchiest branch of historical study in the world because any anyone can claim some new angle. It's so difficult to conclusively prove anyone wrong that you can, you can spout some theory, sell a book, say you've solved the mystery and, and, and that's it. Indeed, and just make shit up. Even um, that, what's on the face? The one that has made enough money off of writing crime stuff and decided to do one. Patricia Cornwell. Yeah, where yeah. she just actually made up evidence about the Duke well, she, Yeah, she destroyed one of Walter Sickett's paintings to, to scrounge some DNA from somewhere that purportedly, you know, oh, she, it's, in, it's in a daft percentile with some, some evidence found near one of the crime scenes, assuming that it wasn't contaminated in the last hundred and whatever years and that all the DNA testing is done properly. There's like a, you know, it's in the same 20% of a, of a, you know, chance of, of, of being right. And I don't know, 20% of the population of London, even back then was still pretty high. Um, 
and like um, her evidence on the Duke of Clarence is like, well, I've seen it and it's privately held, and I don't have to tell you where it is, which <laughs> is never a good sign for his story. Yeah, no. But she made loads of money, and we're not bitter at all. Uh, no. Holmes, are you satisfied that this qualifies Stride as a scandalous woman? I think, I mean, the circumstances are scandalous. I think, I mean, what's quite interesting, although she did have a, she did work as a sex worker early on in Sweden. She wasn't, she wasn't a sex worker at the time of her death, was she? No, I think this is what's coming out now, isn't it? That um, there weren't necessarily sex workers. It's been assumed they were all prostitutes. Well, it's just quite a lazy sort of narrative, really. Mm. And I don't know if that was like media driven to try and justify the sort of, sensationalist reporting around it at the time um i guess she, she the, official, the official story was that theory was that jack the ripper was disturbed by that horse and car wasn't he and that's why there were only slight wounds compared to his other victims it, it could be but usually they they the amount of time that he had between um being cited and or possibly being possibly being cited and then uh, Dimshut's arriving was long enough for him to because serial killers escalate um, from the, the previous killing. The, 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 they want to make it more and more brutal. And the fact that it was just a, a single cut and then he didn't then go into a frenzy, which he'd done with the murder, murder before. Yeah, um, Annie Chapman had been stabbed repeatedly in the, in the, in the stomach afterwards. He, he just cut and then let her bleed out and disappeared. I, I think the real scandal with, um, uh, with Jack the Ripper is, is the fact that people for a hundred years didn't even think that they might not be prostitutes. Yeah. Um, that's my real problem. I mean, that is how bad research is in this area, that no one even considered the possibility that a woman might have another occupation other than being a prostitute. Yeah, um, it could and, be that they were just sleeping rough, couldn't it? Yeah, I mean, there's the book The Five by uh, Hallie Rubinold, who's definitely what you want to read on this subject. Um, it came out last year and it's really good. Well, also, uh, we covered him earlier on, Jack the Ripper, didn't we, in one of the early ones. And I think the point I made then is that, you know, what he did was horrific, yet he's sort of become a bit of a sort of figure of fun in our society. And, that you know, you can do tours on him, and there are tours done by out-of-work actors who will dress up and make it a little bit funny sort of thing. And, and I, you know, I think it's at the time, I don't think you would get out-of-work actors dressing up as Harold Shipman and doing a similar thing around Hyde at the moment. Yeah, I don't know if it's because it was so long ago or whatever, but it seems... We don't seem to treat it with the utter horror that it deserves. Yeah, I'd agree, actually. It's almost become, it's like people are more excited by it than horrified by it. Well, it's an attraction in the London Dungeons, and you can go and see, and it's got like a beating heart in the corner, and it's, it's a tourist attraction to see, what, five plus women be brutally murdered and possibly sexually assaulted. Sounds like think, Jake's I mean, for the family. Yeah, yeah. Okay, let's move on to, let's do one of the girls next. Let's do Charlie, who is not going to do Barbara Villiers, are you? No, I'm not. And the only reason is I've spent five years with her now, I figured out, um, having admired her for a long time. I admire her work and uh, I just couldn't, couldn't condense her into five minutes. So I'm going a little bit off from Barbara Villiers, but she will make an appearance because I'm going to talk about the wonderful Hortense Mancini. And I'm not even going to attempt to pronounce her name with a French or Italian accent. So she's Hortense. Let's just, we'll go with that. 
Hortense Mancini was born the fourth of five sisters in Rome in June 1646. And after the death of their Italian aristocrat father, Hortense's mother picked up her five daughters and three sons and left Rome for the court of King Louis XIV in France, where her own brother was something of a big deal. Hortense's uncle was Cardinal Mazarin, chief minister of France and renowned big deal. The arrival of five Italian sisters and a couple of bonus cousins, all raven-haired, dark-eyed, olive-skinned, really shook things up at the French court. They became known as the Mazarinettes, and they started a reality TV show. No, they didn't do that. Um, they, <laughs> they would have, though, if TV had they, existed, right? I mean, this is, I, I don't want to draw the obvious um, comparison here, but we know that this is the Kardashians in the 17th century. I mean, they um, could have started a reality series of pamphlets. They could have. They could have. I'm sure they were written about. No, they, they didn't start a, um, a female vocal group or a reality TV show. They sat at their powerful uncle's disposal into advantageous marriages and they all married well. Hortense was the last to be married off because she was her uncle's favourite. She was witty and charming and just one of those kids that you, you love. She was a great kid. Um, he wasn't going to hand her over to just anyone Certainly not the penniless embarrassment that was Charles Stuart, who would have loved to have married her in 1659. Um, Mazarin was like, sorry, no throne, marriage pal, get on your bike. Finally, in 1661, at the grand old age of 15, Mazarin picked a suitor for Hortense and married her off to one of the richest men in Europe and then promptly died because his work was done. He left Hortense more than her fair share of his fortune, as well as his title, and she became the Duchess de Mazarin. Her husband, Armand Charles de la Porte de la Marie, I believe that's terrible, he had issues. Um, he became so paranoid that Hortense was going to have affairs with the men at court that he took her off to live in his country chateau. It was a very strange place, though, where Armand's fear of the hanky-panky was so all-encompassing that he ordered all the genitalia and rudy bits to be painted out of the paintings on his walls and chipped away from the statues on his estate. He forbade the milking of cows by his female servants, and if they were still too tempting, even without an udder in their hands, he would have their teeth smashed in. Yeah, what? nice guy. <laughs> yeah, don't, don't be being good-looking and tempting him into sin. Don't be doing that. So this is a, this is this vivacious young woman suddenly living in this nightmare with a maniac of a husband. She formed a friendship with a similarly unhappy married young woman. Marcus, stop milking cows in my eye, in my eye line. <laughs> Disturbing me in, into sin. I, I will not look. Um, she, she made a friend with a similarly unhappily married young woman named Sidonie de Lenoncourt. She would have been like a lady's maid. Their friendship was said to be so close that pretty soon Armand was forced to send his wife to a convent after discovering the girls in bed together. He was not a plumber or there to fix the TV, so he naturally freaked out to find his wife in bed with another woman. Sidonie's family was similarly unimpressed and they put her into a convent as well. The same convent 
where the two teenage girls terrorised the nuns, putting ink in the holy water, running round the halls on mock hunts with their dogs and flooding one poor nun's bedroom. When the nuns didn't want the girls around anymore, they sent them home to their husbands. By 1666, Hortense had done her job. She'd given Armand a son and heir, and that was after giving him three daughters, all called Marie, and demanded to go back to court. She was bored. She wants to go and have a bit of fun. Armand refused and took all her jewellery away. Two more years passed, and Hortense had really had enough. She conspired with her brother to supply her with a horse, which she rode back to Paris, dressed most scandalously in men's clothing. This is going to be a theme tonight. I can just feel it. She landed on her feet when an old suitor, the Duke de Savoy, invited her to be his mistress and live in his lovely house and take a pension from him. Sorted. Louis XIV turned a blind eye just so long as her pension from the crown continued to go to her husband as per. But when the Duke de Savoy died in 1675, Hortense was out on her ear with nothing. She went to Louis for help, but he told her that there's basically nothing he could do for her financially because, you know, her husband, the patriarchy. Despite being stupidly wealthy in her own right, thanks to Uncle Mazarin, she was not wealthy in her own right because all that money belonged to her husband. But there was one more person in Europe who might be in the market for a new mistress. Yes, you guessed it. Britain's randiest monarch, King Charles II. Mm. Yay, we got Charlie in. So under the guise of visiting her niece, Mary of Modena, the new Duchess of York, Hortense threw on her comfy bloke's clothes and she headed to England. She was given rooms at Whitehall and a pension, becoming the king's mistress. And her rooms were filled with the most incredible minds of Europe. And she's credited with bringing the concept of the salon to London. So gatherings of artists, scientists, philosophers, etc. But there's more scandal. I've got more scandal for you. Not content with stripping the king, Hortense began an affair with Anne, Countess of Sussex, the king's daughter, by Barbara Villiers, Duchess of Cleveland. <gasps> Cute tenders noises. Um, the two women were inseparable. Anne was much younger than Hortense. Uh, she was similarly unhappily married and unfulfilled as Hortense had been in her youth. And maybe she saw some hope in her own situation by Hortense's example. The two women were seen out play fighting with swords in their nightgowns, which was when Anne's husband called foul and sent his wife off to the country. Anne kept to her bed crying and kissing a miniature of Hortense. There are also rumours of Hortense and the playwright Aphra Bain, all whilst being the king's mistress. But the king never discarded from his hand. He only ever added to it. And on the night before he suffered the stroke which killed him, Charles was seen at an entertainment, probably in Hortense's salon, with Hortense and Louise de Caruel and Barbara Villiers, three of his most scandalous mistresses, Italian, French and English, all Catholic, all trouble in their own ways. With Charles gone, Hortense was able to stay under the protection of the new King James II, thanks to her niece, who's now Queen Consort. Armand tried as hard as he could to get his wife home. He's not forgotten about her, even launching legal cases to try and force her. But she was quite happy at the English court, hanging out in her salon, drinking, shagging and gambling her money away. But then she died and could fight him no longer. In 1699, at the age of 53, Hortense's lifeless body was claimed as collateral by her debtors. She owed a lot of money. 
Seeing his chance, Armand paid for his wife's corpse and paraded it from London to France on a tour lasting some months before he finally permitted her to be buried beside her beloved uncle, Cardinal Mazarin. The girl who had been so reluctantly married off, so jealously owned and so admirably freed herself from control had finally come full circle, repossessed by her husband and returned to the care of her uncle. Her scandal lives on in those who find power in her story to this day, and it's one of the very few women's stories that can be read in her own words. Hortense published her own memoirs in 1675, left out a lot of the juicy stuff, but was the first woman to do so. You go, girl. I like her, Alina. I quite like this idea of um, parading corpses, really. Yes, that's my wife. This is mine. Yes, (laughs) I want to know. I mean, I know this is kind of like asking for a bit too much detail, but did he mummify? How did he manage to parade her corpse from England like for so long without it decomposing? Okay, so this is this is not something I've done a lot of research into, but I do know that there were techniques that have gone back you know, way, way back into, I mean, the Egyptians were mummifying, as we know, they, they would stuff people, basically, they stuff them to stop them leaking. And uh, I should imagine there were certain things done to her to keep her fresh for a while. But (laughs) (laughs) Oh, my God. Sorry. I'm just, yeah, anyway, moving on. You were either going to jump on that or you were going to jump on the idea that there are these women that manage to just become someone's mistress and basically get paid for it and don't have to have a job. And I was waiting for you to say that you want one of those gigs. I do want one of those gigs because then I can be a historian full time and do what I like. I'll have one of those gigs. Yeah, (laughs) even Lockie's like, I'll pimp myself out to some old bloke. (laughs) (laughs) What was that, Marcus? Suck a lot of dick if I got paid for it. That's fine. It's an exclusive here down the pub on History House. That's not exclusive. Sorry, Josh. We all do it, basically. Kit disagrees about her being the first woman to write a biography, though. Yeah, I do. Um, I mean, Anna Komnena, for example, in the Alexiad would be a good example of a woman writing a biography. Um, that was about, what, 600 years earlier? So her own, her own memoirs, her own autobiography. Anna Komnena wrote uh, a story of her life and her father's life called the Alexiad, which is one of the main references for the First Crusade. Oh, okay. I'll look that up. I mean, it might be that I'm, we might be on semantics here. So it might have been that it was published. It might have been the first published and distributed. Uh, okay, yeah. But I'll, I'll look that up. Like I say, I've, I've been spending five years with, with Barbara and Hortense is on my, on my radar, but I look forward to spending more time with her. So I'll look that up. Brilliant. Holmes. Sorry, I'm, I'm still distracted by Marcus's offer, to be honest. I mean, I don't, <laughs> I don't know if it's a I mean, is, is, that, is that a counter offer? How much are you. Okay, well, we'll, we'll talk offline. I just wondered if you were permitted to make that offer when you're on furlough. That was all. <laughs> this, this is uh, Holmes's lawyer head on here. Second yeah. <laughs> jobs are permitted. I, I was quite impressed with her. I mean, in a way, her scandalous behaviour, I, I, it was sort of forced on her by other people and circumstances. Rather, You'd have thought, had she been able to have her inheritance and just live with the person she initially wanted to, none of this would have happened. And she didn't really seem to hurt anyone in her actions, sort of thing, really. I mean, 
the um, the husband that she was married to. You know, you mentioned about bits being removed from statues and bits being covered up on paintings. Was he always like that, or was that a response to her when she came into his life? I think that's interesting. Well, when she moved to his chateau, he'd already done the thing with the art. He'd already, you know, he. We we hear a lot of people doing this, you know, covering up bits that they find offensive in art. So we know that that was there, but a certain amount of it, who knows, his paranoia might have been based on the fact that she was so vivacious and at court, especially the French court, you you were meant to flirt. That's that's the whole thing. Doesn't necessarily mean she was doing anything. Um, and I think that Mazarin, I think her uncle would have impressed on her a certain amount of her responsibility and what was expected of her. So not to give it away. But uh, I think maybe the paranoia came from her being so so vivacious maybe i mean it's slightly odd otherwise i mean the general rule you know if you don't want tits and fannies on your walls don't buy stuff that's got tits and fannies on your walls and put them on your walls basically yeah. <laughs> don't get pretty milkmaids so i mean you know what are you gonna do <laughs> uh, that image of marcus doing the whole eurovision milkmaid thing is never gonna leave me now. i asked what was it with him banning the milkmaid some milking yes he did well he did not want was that to too sexy was that yeah, too... that's it. Okay. Well, exactly bear in mind that most did. blokes will get a boner at the sight of something like really innocuous, like, I don't know, Hilda Ogden or whatever, at some point in their life. The idea that if someone gives you a boner, you smash their teeth in to teach them a lesson strikes me as uh, slightly unfair. She's never going to look at a dairy farm in the same way. <laughs> <laughs> well, also, as we know, there are, there are some people that really like the idea of a milkshake. So it could be that that caused the arousal rather than the actual act of milking itself. Dude, it could be the cow that caused the arousal. Let's well, not say the It's all one big mess. It's all one big mess. I think we can agree that Armand had problems. He was not a nice man. But... I like that one. I think that's a contender. Uh, let's go. Let's do one more and then we'll go refill drinks and everything. Let's do Kate. <laughs> right. I am ready, I promise. Okay, so um, I went for somebody who is basically just outright scandalous. She just generally caused outrage um, with her behaviour. She wasn't um, influenced by anyone. She wasn't affected by situational circumstance. She was just scandalous of her own accord and in her own right. And she was the Dirty Duchess. That's what she was known as. Um, her actual name, her maiden name, was Ethel Margaret Wiggum. Better known as Margaret Campbell, the Duchess of Argyle. So this one was particularly interesting to me, um, owing to a bit of, uh, I suppose, a family legend. Um, my paternal grandmother grew up, Marine Campbell, grew up in Inverary Castle and was educated to university level at the expense of the Duke of Argyle. Um, the rest you'll have to imagine for yourselves. Though suffice to say... My side of the family share many of the traits of the Argyles, namely eccentricity and alcoholism. Anyway, the Dirty Duchess. Born in 1912, the only daughter of a Scottish multimillionaire, Margaret was privately educated in New York. By age 15, she was pregnant thanks to a holiday romance with David Niven. All hell broke loose. Her father was furious. Remember, it was 1928. She was shipped off to London for a secret abortion. And things carried on. In 1930, she was presented at court in London. 
and was called the debutante of the year. She was considered a real beauty and caught the attention of many men. Her youthful flings included engagements to Prince Ali Khan, son of the third Aga Khan, who eventually married Rita Hayworth, record-breaking aviator and racing driver Glenn Kidson, Baron Martin Stillman von Brabus of Brabus Mercedes fame and wealth, as well as fighter pilot and publishing heir Max Aitken, Charles Greville, seventh Earl of Warwick, nephew of Anthony Eden and Hollywood film star to be. She also had relations with the married Prince George, Duke of Kent. And this was all between 1930 and 1933. She certainly didn't hang around. Eventually, a wealthy American golfer, Charles Sweeney, caught her eye. She converted to Roman Catholic and he managed to get her all the way down the aisle in her Norman Hartnell designed wedding dress, which caused such a stir that the traffic in Knightsbridge was at a complete standstill for three hours. Charles Sweeney and Margaret had children. Well, presumably they were his. Their daughter, Frances, married the Duke of Rutland, who I thought only existed in Jilly Cooper novels. Mind you, add a couple of horses and that's pretty much what we've got here. They also had a son before they divorced in 1947. Following this, Margaret became engaged to a Texas-born banker, Joseph Thomas of Lerman Brothers, but that didn't last. She was also romantically involved with Theodore Rousseau, curator of the Metropolitan Museum of Art. Though they never formalised the relationship, they continued to see each other often throughout their lives. In 1951, Margaret became the third wife of Ian Douglas Campbell, the 11th Duke of Argyll. Within a few years, the marriage was falling apart. The Duke suspected her of infidelity, so he went snooping, and he found passionate love letters, as well as a whole collection of explicit Polaroids of the Duchess, in the company of other men, completely naked, save for her signature pearls. There were photos of the bepearled Duchess fellating a naked man, as well as a series capturing a man masturbating. The first one captioned, thinking of you, and the last, superfluously one imagines, finished. The venue for these was the bathroom in her London home, and the men were all photographed only from the neck down. They became known as the headless man, though further inspection revealed there were at least two different men featured in the blowjob pictures, as well as the gent in the wanking series, and the other 13 Polaroids of various men with the Duchess, all naked and in varying states of romance. The Duke also found her diary, which included a list of 88 men with whom she'd had sexual relations. The list is rumoured to have included two government ministers, three members of the British royal family, a former Nazi, Hollywood actors Bob Hope and Maurice Chevalier, among others, a fair percentage of the men of Inverary, passing holiday makers, and even teenage boys. Her modus operandi was described by the then 17-year-old virgin, Michael Thornton, who met the 46-year-old Margaret for a mutual acquaintance. She offered him the use of her bathroom to freshen up, but no sooner had he stepped into her giant pink seashell of a bathtub than the Duchess came into the bathroom completely naked as if sharing a bath with a complete stranger younger than her youngest child was an everyday occurrence it probably was only three months later anthony wallace turner the son of some friends was also relieved of his virginity by the duchess aboard the ss homeric en route to canada she often spoke quite blatantly about how much she enjoyed breaking in a virgin the duke also claimed to have discovered documentary proof that margaret margaret had been responsible for forgeries alleging that his sons by his previous marriage had been fathered by other men. The suggestion being that Margaret had planned to cause the Duke's legitimate sons and heirs to be disinherited and substitute either a child of her own or a baby bought abroad and passed off as hers as the heir of the dukedom. 
Ian Campbell filed for divorce and he got his divorce. The judge, Lord Wheatley, in a devastating four and a half hour judgment, denounced the Duchess as a wholly immoral and completely promiscuous woman whose sexual appetite could only be satisfied by a large number of men. This didn't hold her back for long. Within a year or two, her name was restored to all major invitation lists. Lord Mountbatten went out of his way to be photographed dancing with her and Prince Michael of Kent attended one of her parties. By this time, she had just about squandered her millions. So she wrote her memoirs and opened her home to paying visitors. When this didn't pay for her lifestyle, she eventually moved into a suite at the Grosvenor Hotel. After some time, her children finally put her into a nursing home where in 1993 she died. She is, um, I'm just looking at pictures of her as well. She has a face as well that just says, I do not give two shits what anyone thinks of me every picture on google her face is just like and what she was really well known for being like deadpan in photographs and very um not smiling yeah completely deadpan the The polaroid face is pretty epic (laughs) absolutely the uh the polaroids i believe are a different matter i don't think she's nearly so deadpan in the polaroids (laughs) i just part of me wants to google it but part of me's afraid um them i googled it hell i tried i couldn't find them <laughs> damn in the interest of historical research that is uh so we like we weren't we're not here to like slut shame we were here to talk about like fun scandalous women but i mean she she's a slag isn't she Holmes? Yeah, <laughs> and it was not down to circumstance influence nobody forced her to do it Nobody mistreated her. She was hugely wealthy, multimillionaire in her own right. She was the only daughter of a multimillionaire. She married wealthy, wealthy men. So it wasn't like she was forced into prostitution. There's no accounts of her having been raped. There's no, uh, nothing to suggest why. Just she wanted to. She wanted to screw as many men while they were as young as possible. Yeah, oh, girl. Everybody, there's, everybody knows, there's, especially there's loads of blokes like that. I mean, you know, what she did was she, everyone was consenting. She didn't, didn't really hurt anyone, he says, slightly reluctantly. But, I mean... Um, I'm, I'm, I don't know, abortion at 15 in 1928 was, ooh, scandalous. Um, shagging 17-year-old virgins in the 1950s, I think that happened. But who knows, probably happened throughout her life. But yeah, I think shagging 17-year-old virgins is not really, really acceptable. I mean, morally. I, I went on holiday to Inverary once and none of this happened to me. <laughs> and I went to her castle and everything, which the, the Polaroids are, 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 are slightly surprisingly absent from any display yeah. that they've got in Castle. There's not even a portrait of her in Inverary Castle for probably obvious reasons, I suppose. Uh, a bit of me is hoping that those Polaroids turn up on the Antiques Roadshow Christmas special. <laughs> <laughs> I've got to say, Matt, I find her quite icky, Alina. You know what? Respect. Because <laughs> no, we're so closed off about sex. And I really don't care what I'm going to say now. We're really closed off about sex in this world. And just because a guy shags 30 or 40, 50 women, it's like, oh, yeah, great on your lad. You know, get in there. But I but find that does. icky as well. It's sex, for God's sakes. Who cares? Look, the thing is open. open. Probably the parents of the 17-year-olds. Okay, right. He was the son of her friend. 
that's her friend's kid, man. She's there's a bit of a sinister vibe about this woman. You asked for scandalous. You didn't specify that we had to like them. No, no, that's true. I just went for full on all out scandal. Mm. (laughs) The the kids are a little bit, you know. Okay, we don't. We're not going to go down the road. But the rest of it, fully grown eighteen year old men. Who who cares? She had lots of sex. Good on her. She lived a good life. <laughs> Do we know why she took, why she had the photos? Um, they were her The memories. Yeah. I was say, maybe she was quite forgetful. She kept quite a detailed diary, and she marked in her diary every date when she had sex with a man, and she kept a list of all their names as well. And so, presumably, the the Polaroids were just a further sort of keepsake. See, now I'm running for the door. Right. So I was, I was okay with, with, the, with the shagging. It's the list of names and, <laughs> and the Polaroid that's making me... <laughs> like Gerlaine Maxwell. <laughs> there's, there's some um, discussion over who the headless man was as well. And I forget the names now, but there were a few that had the finger pointed at them. And, and one of the reasons for the pointing of the finger was the fact that, that something to do with the fact that the only Polaroid in the country or something was at the home office or somewhere. So there was... Yeah, some sort of finger pointing to some quite influential figures. I, I thought well, for one dreadful minute there you were going to say Clive because he's gone quite quiet, but obviously. <laughs> I was going to say Kit can supply a head if you need one. <laughs> <laughs> oh, Kit's actually turned his camera on. He was so inspired by that story. He's <laughs> got yeah, a bit of a thousand yard stare going on. It's even because it's 6 a.m. in South Korea, or that story's blown his mind. Both. <laughs> I really like that one. Um, no, you're right. It's interesting that scandalous already has meant several different things. I'm excited to hear what other people have got as well. Uh, let's go get some drinks and then we will reconvene. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Okay, we are recording again. God help us. Beth has just declared she's easy. She's a bottle of wine in already and on the second, (laughs) I believe now. So we're going to go to her next before she just becomes insensible and starts doing her (laughs) father Jack impression when we ask her questions like, fuck it, don't care, drink. Um, Beth, who have you picked? Yeah. Well, I had a bit of a task this week because thought some of the people I wanted to pick had already been picked by other people so I had to really look for this one but I'm quite pleased with my pick there's a lady by the name of Angela Isadora Duncan or 
Isadora Duncan as she just went by. And she was born in 1878 um, in California and was the youngest of four children. Um, her father was not a man of reputable character. Um, soon after she was born, he had been found to be basically defrauding two banks that he'd helped to set up. Um, and he managed to avoid going to, to prison, but he, her mother, so completely angered by his, the, his being involved in a financial scandal and his fidelities as well, divorced him and moved out of the area. And she lived with her mother and her brothers with her siblings um, in, Cal in Oakland, California. She left school at the age of 10 and taught children how to dance. She was a dance teacher. That was her first profession, as it were. Um, that profession developed over time, shall we say. She had a novel approach to dance. Um, it, and that was quite evident from the classes that she taught as a teenager. She, it was all about free movement and freedom of, of inspiration rather than very structured classes, which were being taught at the time. Um, she moved in 1898 to London because she felt really unhappy in America and didn't think her talents were being appreciated. So she moved to London and performed for the wealthy. But what makes her a scandalous woman, I suppose, is her, um, not just her private life, but aspects of her professional life as well. She completely, for the time, early 1900s, completely was opposite of everything that was socially acceptable. Um, her morals were completely different from what everyone else um, had in mind. She was married. She bore three, well, she did, she did get married at points in her life, but she had three children who were all born out of wedlock. Um, one of her children being the grandson of um, Isaac Singer, who was, you know, the Singer sewing machines. Her child was son of one of Isaac Singer's sons. So came from a very powerful family. Um, she was also very open about her political beliefs. She was, um, and her religious beliefs as well. Um, at the time she was, she was an atheist and she was a communist. To top that all off, she was a lesbian as well. Well, lesbian, some people called her a lesbian. Some said she was bisexual. She never gave herself a term for her sexuality. Um, but she was deaf very, at the very least, an atheist and a communist. One of her most famous performances was during her last um, tour of the United States, where she would, um, in 1922 and 1923, where she would wave a red scarf and bare her chest to the entirety of the stage. And she did this most famously in Boston, proclaiming, this scarf is red, so am I. So, her very famous, she was very famous for this and she did this quite often. She would just whip them out and wave her scarf along as well. Um, she was very anti any sorts of religion as well. Again, at the time, very untraditional for, particularly for America as well. You know, we have all thoughts about America and religion and she was very, very opposite all of that. Um, she did have a tragic life as well. Two of her children, the oldest two, drowned um, in the care of their nanny in 1913 when their runaway car went, felt, drove um, into the River Seine in Paris. Um, and she was really, really distraught by this. 
uh, basically she was so dis- well she was so distraught that her autobiography does suggest that because of her loss of her children and the fact that she had all of this love taken out of her heart she basically begged a young italian stranger in her own words begged a young italian stranger by the name of romano romanelli who was a sculptor to sleep with her because she was so desperate for another child she became pregnant and then did give son to a child a son on the august the 13th 1914 but the child did shortly die after birth so she just had a very tragic life as well she spent a lot of time in Russia, um, after the communists, after the revolution of 1917, um, had not hundreds, that's just my own exaggeration, but had a lot of... The wine talking, right? Hmm? The wine talking. Yeah, just a little bit. (laughs) Um, She had lots of affairs with lots of young men, men younger than her in age, again, like uh, Kate's example, younger than her. One particular example, um, the poet Sergei Yezdinin, who was 18 years her junior, and they got married, but the marriage broke up less than two years later. Um, had very lots of very public relationships and affairs, one particularly with uh, the playwright Mercedes de Acosta. Um, and she wrote, lots of letters were published as well, and in one of them, Isadora did write, Mercedes, lead me with your little strong hands and I will follow you to the top of a mountain, to the end of the world, wherever you wish which wherever whatever you think about her as a bit of a character which i certainly think she is she's obviously a very passionate woman and she obviously felt felt emotions very very deeply and i can kind of i can kind of get on board with that as a person who feels emotions deeply myself um she met a very tragic end in 1927 september the 14th 1927 she was a passenger in an automobile owned by benoit falcetto who was a french italian mechanic um she was wearing a long flowing hand-painted silk scarf a very beautiful item and she's reported to say either one of two things to friends as they got in the car and left she either said farewell my friends i go to glory or farewell my friends i am off to love they went off in the car, um, see, and unfortunately, during the car ride, her silk scarf, which was tied around her neck, became in- entangled around the open spoke wheels of her the car, pulling her from the car and then breaking her neck. Um, she was pronounced dead at the hospital that she had been brought to. Um, she was cremated and her ashes were placed next to those of her children, which were buried at um, Pierre Lachaise cemetery in Paris um her headstone does is um inscribed with uh, the ballet school of the opera of Paris because she had set up the school for that in Paris she even has on top of all of this um a, a syndrome named after her the Isadora Duncan syndrome which refers to injury or death consequent to entanglement of neckwear with a wheel or other machinery so I think we can say a particular a tragic life a scandalous life but my god a powerhouse of a woman uh home you can go first this time yeah she was quite interesting I think I think the type that I think Beth suffers a little bit going straight after Kate here because Given what we heard before the break, I just kept thinking, well, that's not that bad. That's not that bad. You know, <laughs> there's, there's, 
no photos, there's no references to masturbation, right? It all seems fairly normal. You have to remember, Holmes, I went to a Catholic girls' school. Anything is bad for me. <laughs> <laughs> which, is, which is true. And obviously you've illustrated that throughout the weeks that have been doing this, of course. Always <laughs> overlooking. Um, you know, just even the quote about lead me with your strong hands to the top of any mountain you wish, whatever it was. That's really nice compared to the Duchess of Argyle, you know. Yeah, I think uh, it was gonna, everyone's going to struggle a bit to, to plumb the depths of the blowjob Polaroids that Kate's offered up. Uh, not <laughs> <laughs> not we, of her. Are we doing any phrasing? Because... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, because Marcus has now got a boner. Uh, Alina? I heard the word communist and I kind of switched off a little bit. <laughs> Lena, I'm, I'm really sorry, Beth. I love you very much, but you communists, bad, evil. <laughs> I forgot my audience. I think. <laughs> I think you forgot your no, own seems... at one point in there as well. Maybe a little bit. She seems a little. I don't know. All I can say is meh. It's all right. Red, red homes will sort see you through. Okay. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> Right, okay, let's go to... Oh, he looks so excited. How could I not go to Clive? Look at his little face. His face is like, is it me? Is it me? Is it me? Go on, Clive. Your moment has come. Okay, okay. All right, it's not going to be Mother Teresa, but instead... Uh... Sorry to disappoint. Sorry to disappoint. Japan in the 1930s was a highly regimented and repressed society. It was a military dictatorship where the only opposition came in the form of attempted coups organised by even more fanatical officers. This was the society that Seda Abe scandalised, and my goodness me, did she scandalise it. Born into an upper-middle-class family in 1905, Seda was the youngest of only four of, 11, of seven siblings to survive infancy. While her parents appeared to have been respect, a respectable couple in terms of the norms of that society. Her brother was a womanizer who ran off with his parents' money, and his sister was equally promiscuous. Her father did what any father would do in the circumstances and, and sold her sister to a brothel, although he did subsequently buy her back. Sada fell in with a rum crowd when she was 17. She was herself sold to a geisha house. She liked the idea of being a geisha, but having come to the calling at too late an age, she found herself stuck in the lower ranks in the geisha house and was obliged to provide sexual services to the house's clients. She contracted syphilis and became understandably disillusioned. She decided to pursue her calling in a more lucrative manner and obtained a position in a licensed brothel. Sadly, her stay there was curtailed when she was accused of stealing from clients and she moved to the unlicensed world. There she achieved an ambition and became a mistress. Her lover said of her, she was really strong, a real powerful one. Even though I'm pretty jaded, she was enough to astound me. She wasn't satisfied unless we did it two, three or four times a night. To her, it was unacceptable unless I had my hands on her private parts all night long. At first it was great, but after a couple of weeks, I got a little exhausted. He would, however, neither leave his wife nor uh, for her nor allow her other clients. Their relationship foundered in acrimony. He later described her as a slut and a whore. And she said of him, he didn't love me and treated me like an animal. He was the kind of scum who would then plead with me when I said we should break up. 
We all know the type. Fed up with being a sex worker, she took a job as a waitress and naturally became involved with a customer, Doro Omiya, a professor and banker with political ambitions. At his suggestion, she moved to Tokyo, where she became an apprentice in a restaurant owned by Kijenso Ishida, a 42-year-old married man, and Philandra, with whom Seda inevitably started a relationship. Omiya, it appears, was unable to satiate her enormous sexual appetite, but Ishida, despite or perhaps because of his advanced years, was more capable. They embarked on prolonged shagfests. Four or more days of unbridled, or sometimes possibly bridled, chained, or otherwise strained passion. They, dis- they disappeared on one of their marathon sessions between the 27th April and 8th of May 1936. I mean, the lockdown's got nothing on that. She said of him, it is hard to say exactly what was so good about Ishida, but it was impossible to say anything bad about his looks, his attitude, his skill as a lover, the way he expressed his feelings. I had never met such a sexy man. After their 11-day bonk, he staggered back to the restaurant, exhausted but happy. She started drinking heavily and, as you do, went to the theatre where she saw a play about a geisha who stabbed her lover. Immediately the curtain came down, Seda popped off to a porn broker, hocked some of her clothes and bought a kitchen knife. Seda and the Sheeda were soon reunited for one lengthy, last lengthy tryst. And this is where it got serious. Seda put the knife to the base of Ishida's penis, saying she would make sure he would never play around with another woman. Ishida laughed at this. Two nights into the bout of sex, Seda began choking Ishida. He told her to continue, saying that this increased his pleasure. She had to do it to her as well. On the evening of 16th May 1936, Abe used her, Seda used her obisash to cut off Ishida's breathing during orgasm, and they both enjoyed it. They repeated this for two or more hours. Once Seda stopped the strangulation, Ishida's face became distorted and would not return to its normal appearance. He took 30 tablets of a sedative called Kalmatin to try to soothe his pain. According to Seda, as Ashida started to doze, he told her, You'll put the cord around my neck and squeeze it again when I'm, while I'm sleeping, won't you? If you start to strangle me, don't stop, because it's so painful afterwards. Seda commented that she wondered if he'd wanted her to kill him, but on reflect- reflection decided he must have been joking. Joking or not, at two o'clock in the morning of the 18th May, while Ashida was getting a well-earned hip, Seda Abe took the cord from her gown and strangled him again, this time to death. She later said, After I had killed Ashida, I felt totally at ease, as though a heavy burden had been lifted from my shoulders, and I felt a sense of clarity. She laid by his cooling corpse for a few hours, and then took the knife and, in a romantic gesture that will live forever in history, severed Ashida's cock and balls. With the spilt blood that drained from his detached genitalia, she wrote, Seda Ishida no Kichi Futurari Kiri. We, Seda and Kichi Ishida, are no longer alone. We, Seda Kichi Ishida, are alone. On Ishida's left thigh and on a bed sheet, she then carved Seda into his left arm. After putting on Ishida's underwear, she left the inn at about 8am, telling staff, not to disturb now profoundly and terminally asleep Ashida. Outside, she bumped into her aspiring political politician chum and apologised to him. 
He thought at the time she was apologising for shagging around. In fact, she was apologising for ruining his political career, which came crashing down when his association with her became known. Rashida's body was discovered and the police search began. The story grabbed national attention. It represented the contrast to the repressive military regime. She scandalised and gave hope. Such was the public mania created by Seda that reports of sightings were made all over the country. At one place, a rumour of her presence led to a stampede. She was a celebrity, albeit a scandalous one. She wandered around with a dismembered penis and scrotum neatly wrapped in her pocket. On May 19th, Seda went shopping and saw a movie. Under a pseudonym, she stayed an inn in Shinawa on 20th May, where she had a massage, drank three bottles of beer, and then spent the day writing farewell letters to Omiya, the aspiring politician, and Ashida. She later said of that afternoon, I felt attached to Ashida's penis and thought that only after taking leave from it quietly could I then die. I unwrapped the paper holding them and gazed at his penis and scrotum. I put his penis in my mouth and even tried to insert it into me. It didn't work, however, though I kept trying and trying. Then I decided I would feed to Ashaka, staying with Asida's penis all the while. In the end, I would jump from a cliff at, on Mount Ekoma while holding onto his penis. At four o'clock that afternoon, police detectives, suspicious of the alias which Abe had registered, came to her room. Don't be so formal, she told them. You're looking for Sada Abbey, right? Well, it's me. I'm Sada Abbey. When the police were not convinced, she displayed Ashida's genitalia as proof. She was arrested and subjected to lengthy interrogation. When asked why she did it, she replied, I loved him so much. I wanted him all to myself, but since we were not husband and wife, as long as he lived, he couldn't be embraced by other women. I knew that if I killed him, no other woman could ever touch him again. So I killed him. When details of the crime were made public, rumours began to circulate that Ashida's penis was of extraordinary size. However, the police officer who interrogated Abe after her arrest denied this, saying Ashida's just average. Seda told me, size doesn't make a man in bed. Technique and his desire to please me were all, was what I liked about Ashida. After her arrest, Ashida's penis and testicles were moved to Tokyo University Medical School's Pathology Museum. They were put on public display soon after the end of the Second World War, but have since disappeared in mysterious circumstances. Kit, however, is in that area. She said, the thing I regret most about this incident is that I have come to be misunderstood as some kind of sexual pervert. There has never been a man in my life like Ashida. There were men I liked with whom I slept without accepting money, but none made me feel the way I did toward him. At her trial, the prosecution asked the judge to sentence her to 10 years in prison. She herself would have liked the death penalty. She was sentenced to a very lenient six years, which was later commuted to five. She was released in 1941. For the remainder of the war, she remained in obscurity. But when the post-war Yoshida government encouraged the three S policy, sport, screen and sex, she came back to public attention, became a representation of a stand against the authoritarian society that had existed in the recent past. She wrote an autobiography, became the subject of books and films of academic and psychological studies. She became a legend and worked in a working class pub in the capital. And then in 1970, she disappeared. Do you know what? There is nothing but applause. Mic drop. Do you know what? If Clive doesn't break his duck and win tonight, 
or break his goose even just for the voices alone <laughs> there is no justice in the world Holmes I think that the voices interesting as though they were I mean I've got no way of telling of verifying if they are accurate Japanese accents from the 1930s I mean Fuck accurate that was awesome <laughs> At one point, though, he was doing a Cockney Man in a Brothel and then an old lady. And I noticed towards the end, he started doing the Cockney Man voice for Sada, Sada, whatever her name was. Well, these things got a bit mixed up. She had his woolly in her pocket. She could have perhaps taken on his accent, mightn't she? She did say she popped it in her mouth. Maybe she was speaking with her mouth full. (laughs) (laughs) Mrs. Clive is going to be so fucking proud. Oh, my (laughs) God. I kind of have something because I want to see how it escalates it next. And the, the, the woman accent was, was interesting because there was hints of him going towards an Irish woman, but then he kept going back. <laughs> well, I, I just kept seeing Dorman at that stage, and I thought I'd better not go there. Um, but yeah, I mean, you, you you need to you need to be on some sort of you know you should have been on some sort of sex chat line in the nineties, I think. In terms of, she was quite scandalous, obviously, but she sort of redeemed herself a bit later on, though, didn't she? She was, the the reason I got to know of her was back in 1975, a film came out called Iron Man. So you were in Accent Club, 1975. When I was in what? Accent Club. Yeah, that's when. Um, A film came out by Ashima, the guy who later did Merry Christmas, Mr. Lawrence called Ayanokarida, or The Realm of Passion, or The Realm of the Senses, sorry, which was about a fictionalised account of her life. And it really was quite a shocking film in those days. It's one of the first films shown in England, which actually showed people doing sex things rather than doing it in a make-believe way. But in that film, you get very much the sense of contrast between the wildness of their passion against the really strict military regime that was in operation at the time. There's that sense, so at the time, this would have been incredibly scandalous, but at the same time, hitting a nerve with society about the freedoms that they were missing. True. I mean, I would would say that chopping a chap's cock and balls off and just walking around with them in your pocket would be scandalous in any circumstance. (laughs) But she only only went down for five years, which was pretty impressive. Hang on, where, what are we talking about? <laughs> <laughs> it's also, also the length of her shag fest beforehand are pretty bloody impressive. I mean, yeah. yeah. I mean, how, how many of us can get 11 days off work? Let alone 11 days of her shagging. Where was this last week? He had another benefit of an accent coach last week. That's <laughs> why he wasn't ready. He wasn't ready. <laughs> <laughs> the worrying thing for me, Clive, was the moment when I realised, hang on, I've seen this film. This is I Know Corrida. And yeah. I had to look it up. <laughs> because that was another, it was another one of those films along with Clockwork Orange that had been banned, banned, banned since the 70s and got released in 2000 when I was just starting out as a film student. It was like, we have to go and see this banned film. And then realised that I don't want to be in a cinema right now. This is horrible. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, t- I took a girl to it on the first date. <laughs> Is it Mrs. Clive? <laughs> it was a time when Mrs. Clive was too young to go on a first date with me. 
<laughs> was there a second after that? <laughs> <laughs> Would Mrs. Clive cut off your penis for love? <laughs> Probably when she hears what? this podcast. She has well, to well, listen to that, that, actually. Yeah. We've been married for 34 years and it's still all intact. But don't give her ideas, kid. <laughs> Alex, why do I feel this needs an advisory warning before you post it <laughs> to any platform? Because Clive said cock and balls. Beth nearly died when he said that. That was brilliant. Uh, Alina? Yes, sorry, I kept hitting the wrong button. I didn't think there was something out there that would quite shock me, but um, well done, Clive. <laughs> uh, loved the accents, thought that was very imaginative. It made the story come alive. <laughs> um, not quite sure about laying next to the corpse, cutting his cock off, mutilating his body, and then creating public scandal, but... Well, that's usually the kind of stuff that makes you really happy on this podcast. <laughs> It does, but you know, that's what this podcast lives for, sure. <laughs> little bits, people, little bits. Uh, uh, Elena was probably disappointed she did the mutilation after he died. History hack. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yes. Thank you. My work here is done. No comment. <laughs> I do believe Clive has set the bar. Um, could this be it? Could this be Clive's first victory? And will Mrs. Clive get to find out about it, knowing that he's had to completely just lower himself to our level to get it? Uh, right, okay, let's go. Beth is fanning herself. Have you given her a hot flush, Clive? <laughs> Not for the first time either, apparently. <laughs> <laughs> let's, let's go to someone. Let's go to someone completely innocent and uh, see what they've got to offer us. Well, unless you're a washing machine. Zach. <laughs> I mean, I'm set up for a fool here because there's no way I can follow yeah, that. No, I'm sorry, um, someone had to follow him and it's just like, what the fuck? And what makes this even yeah, worse is that I've gone all kind of serious on you guys. So um, I'm letting the side down. Sorry about this. Um, I want to start by thinking about what makes someone truly scandalous. Within politics, there's a phenomenon um, known as the Overton window, which covers the range of policies which are deemed acceptable to the population at any given point in time. This is going to descend into scandal, don't worry, and it's, it's not going to kind of stay at this tedious level. Over time, the range covered by that window shifts markedly, often though not always, becoming more as time passes. A century ago, for example, the idea of widespread government intervention in supporting the unemployed was a radical and very left idea. Now, if somebody were to advocate abolishing unemployment benefits, we think of them as kind of out of touch with modern standards. And so it is for social standards and expectations, which influence whether or not somebody should be regarded as truly scandalous. It goes without saying that, as we've kind of covered already, the kind of extreme hypocrisy and chauvinism permeated and continues to permeate those kind of social standards on what is scandalous. Whilst men are openly engaged in affairs without fear of any significant social stigma, women who did the same were often judged in the harshest terms for doing exactly the same thing. Even today, if a bloke sleeps around, they might be termed a bit of a lad, whilst a woman doing the same thing would be subjected to any number of insults. Despite this being a down-the-pub episode, though, I'm sure we'd all agree that sexual habits is just one part of what makes an individual scandalous. 
Zach, is this all building up to a rant about hot points? Yeah. It's, it's not. <laughs> I did consider it, though. You know, affairs, these, this is all kind of pretty standard stuff that people like to gossip about. But for somebody to stand out from the crowd, they need to have perhaps done that, but certainly have done something more, something that society can't physically get its head around because it requires them to think fundamentally differently. They need to be doing something outside of their time, ahead of their time in all probability. And you don't get much more ahead of your time, and I'm finally getting to the point here, than a woman running the ultra-patriarchal Roman Empire. Enter the much-aligned Agrippina, the younger, a woman who wasn't afraid to use any means at her disposal, including murder, to consolidate her and her own son's place at the head of the Roman Empire. Born in 15 AD, Agrippina was the granddaughter of Augustus, sister of Caligula, wife of Claudius and mother of Nero. So she was well accustomed not only to moving in the circles of Roman leadership, but also dealing with assholes and total nutjobs. At 13, Agrippina was married to her first cousin once removed, Gnaeus Ahenobarbus. Probably totally ruined the pronunciation there. Um, not much is known about the relationship other than the kind of icky starting point, though it did lead to the birth of Nero. When her brother Caligula was proclaimed emperor in 1837, Agrippina received certain honours, had a degree of influence, um, it featured in some, on some coins even, and received the rights of the Vestal Virgins. But in 39 AD was implicated in a plot to overthrow Caligula and was exiled. There were also some rumours about incestuous goings on between Agrippina and Caligula. Agrippina was soon rehabilitated into the imperial fold following Caligula's assassination, though following the death of her husband, uh, began to look around for another partner. She initially took a fancy to a guy named Galba, but he was devoted to his wife and all Agrippina got was quite literally a slap in the face from Galba's mother-in-law. In the end, she married the brilliantly named Gaius Salustius Crispus Pacinus, uh, who divorced Agrippina's son's aunt, good luck getting your head around all of the family connections here, uh, in order to do so. So clearly we're dealing with a woman who likes to sort of keep things within the family. Agrippina's story gets really interesting, though, after Crispus died, at which point she married Claudius, her uncle, having previously had an affair with Claudius's advisor, because, you know, variety's the spice of life and all that. It was at this point that Agrippina really began to assert herself, as Claudius was apparently quite easily led. Agrippina essentially conspired to see that her son, Nero, would take the throne, preventing Octavia, Claudius's daughter, and Nero's future wife, from marrying someone else by accusing the bloke in question of incest. A little bit ironic given her background, but never mind. Her thinking was that by wedding Nero and Octavia, it would secure Nero's succession. With time, she exerted even more influence over Claudius, having uh, been proclaimed Augusta, um, just the third woman to hold that title, and becoming Claudius's most trusted advisor, before allegedly poisoning him with wild mushrooms so that Nero could take over. Over the next year, Agrippina ruled as regent, holding court, visiting the Senate in an often official capacity, and having her face appear on coins alongside her sons to emphasise her power. In time, though, a power struggle ensued between her and her son, which resulted in her being murdered on Nero's orders. So there you have it. Intrigue, murder, affairs and incest... But I come back to my point at the start about social expectations. Agrippina took a sledgehammer to the expectations of one of history's most patriarchal societies. She subverted the social norms 
and the scale of the danger that she represented to the Roman status quo is demonstrated by how she was recorded in subsequent Roman accounts. She's trivialised. According to some, she was overtly sexual, seducing her way to power. According to others, she was motivated by maternal instinct. The reality, of course, is that she can't be pigeonholed so simply. Agrippina was a female leader, and that's what makes her truly scandalous. She wasn't empress in the traditional sense of being the emperor's spouse. She was a female emperor, a woman 2,000 years ahead of her time, running one of the world's largest empires. And on that basis, notwithstanding what Clive said, I think on the virtue of having waved two fingers in the face of Roman misogyny, she undoubtedly qualifies as one of history's most scandalous women. Thank you, Zach, for everyone's giving you a round of applause because, by God, following Clive and his uh, accent workshop was not an easy thing to do. And thank you for giving us a bit of a serious thinking point as well, because you did message me earlier on saying, I, I really want to say something about how out of order it is that it's not okay for women to behave a certain way and it is okay for men i mean we will redress this by ripping the shit out of some pretty disgusting blokes at some point <laughs> doing the other side the scandalous blokes um but i think this was marcus's idea tonight and he, he wanted to do one that was all about women um and I, I don't think we're effectively we're not i mean like like i say that one was a bit icky for me um but i I'd, I'd like to think we're celebrating their scandal scandalous That's, doesn't have to mean sexual no i'm kind of disappointed myself that i i have got one that's like that but you know i just wanted to open up to like hone in on some like kind of like like the kick-ass woman of history but i thought scandalous was just a a good name yeah i mean i don't even think agrippina there is uh, i think she transcends just being sort of sexually scandalous like you say she she ends up bossing the roman empire holmes what do you make of this one Sorry, I said him outside to get a beer. Um, didn't we've done her before, haven't we? Wasn't she? Didn't Emma do her a while back? I think she might have done. Yeah, she's definitely talked about Agrippina before because she's written a book about her. Yeah, see, I stole this idea from Emma. Classic baby <laughs> face down the pub thief. She did, did it so much better, and she did accents that were better than Clive's as well. It was, uh, <laughs> it, was it was joy to behold. No, I mean, I, I think the problem with a lot of Roman stuff. Uh, <laughs> There's always a bit of incest and murder, and it all sort of blends into each other. I mean, I think, you know, by the sounds of it, she did well to get where where she did. But, I mean, she was connected to people in the first place as well, which must have helped a little bit. She was. But then surely the whole kind of incest, murder, this is all kind of classic stuff that would appeal to Alina. So, you know, I've tried to appeal to the judges here. (laughs) Not necessarily the incest part, but the, the, the murder part, definitely. She's She's... She's still on me. I guess she's, she's on the house. Oh, no, I'm here. I'm here. Sorry, I wasn't, I didn't realize people were waiting for me. But listen, I love Agrippina. I mean, oh my God, she's definitely one of my favorite Romans out there. Don't care what anyone says, you can all suck it. Um, she's so smart. And it's not all about sex. This is what I love about it. It is not all about sex. You know, she uses her power, she uses her brain. And she, I, I know. Holmes isn't going to agree with me, but Zach, you're up there. Sorry, but you are, because I do love her. Yeah, smart move, Zach, going for something ancient, because we all know (laughs) Alina talks about her closet closet obsession with ancient history, which is not a secret to... It's not in the closet at all. No, it's not. (laughs) I I like that one. I think that's a case. And I like that we've brought some of ancient history to it, because when Emma is here, we generally... Emma isn't here, we generally fail at doing that. So well done, Zach. Um, Okay, where should we go next? Let's go to, I'm just seeing who we've got left. 
Right, let's go to James next. Now he's finished troughing McDonald's. <laughs> Not yeah. that I'm bitter because he has the ability to chew and I don't. <laughs> yeah, okay. Then. I've gone similar to Zach in the mine doesn't really involve sex. There is some sex involved in it. But I've gone to 15th century Bohemia, a modern-day Czech Republic, for my choice. Uh, her name is Johanka. Uh, she's also known as the Madonna of Sasau, or modern-day Sasaba, I think it's pronounced. Yeah. Sorry, Czech. And I've chosen her for various reasons. So we're going to about 1403-1404 in Bohemia. And what has just happened is the town of Silver Scalitz has been destroyed by Sigismund, later Emperor Sigismund of the Holy Roman Empire. And because he was trying to get rid of the king's hetman, Radzik Kobila. The survivors of this have gone to the nearby town of Ratai and the injured have gone to Sasau, more specifically the Benedictine monastery there, uh, the Sasau monastery. And the injured of there, and this is where she comes on the scene. They don't know whether she's from Sasa or whether she was from Scalitz. But what we do know is she was there. She'd taken the injured there. She was healing the injured in the infirmary of the monastery. And this would have been scandalous for the time. For one, she's a woman. Two, she's a lowborn woman. And three, she's a woman in a monastery. Now, most of the monks didn't seem to like her. Most wouldn't talk to her. The injured and the wounded were in poor condition and she effectively fought the monks at many points to get better conditions. There is even a recorded incident of her almost all striking one of the monks over something and a guard was posted outside the infirmary, not to protect her, but to protect the monks from her. Now, into this picture comes Baron Sebastian von Berg. He was the custodian of the monastery. The custodians at this point of monasteries were the people that looked after the civilian side of things. They were sort of the the bailiffs, the mayors of the monastery, but not necessarily religious. It was sort of like an annual thing appointed by the abbots. So in he comes into this picture. Now, he either took a shining to her or she took a shining to him. So they start an adulterous relationship. He has a wife in Prague, which is about 30 kilometers away. And it's hard to say whether they were in love, whether she was doing it to get better conditions for the wounded. But the story started to spread. So she's a lowborn woman, a healer, um, not married, doing things a woman shouldn't do. She's in a monastery and she's having an affair in a monastery. And there was also talk about her doing some of the monks, but this seems to have been various stories. Um, oh, yeah, there was at times, supposedly this started to come out that she was doing also not mass, but she was saying she was having visions and preaching to people. However, it's possibly she was just comforting the wounded that sort of thing. However, this gets her into trouble, as you can imagine. And on top of that, she also, this is coming out in her trial, that she brought a prostitute into the monastery. Yeah, <laughs> so this does not go well for her in that regard. However, the prostitute was meant to also be a healer or something. 
But she gets to... Sorry, I've written it all down. Yeah, basically, she's going to be tried. And she gets tried for heresy by uh, Bishop Yaroslav of Benesh... Beneshov or Beneshova. And it's he's also the Bishop of Sarepta. He's a papal inquisitor. And he's in the region hunting Waldesians. However, he's brought to her attention and he basically tells her to stop and she doesn't. So she's charged for heresy. Now, at this point, she could have easily been killed or at very least flogged and her tongue ripped out and she's brought to trial. And you think this is curtains for her. She has no hope. And yet somehow she gets away with it. Some say that she managed to persuade the bishop. Some say that she repented. And I like to believe that she repented because she gets pretty much away scot-free. The custodian, he's heavily chastised by the bishop and gets into a lot of trouble with the abbot. And he's possibly fired. Unfortunately, he disappears from the record. But yeah, unfortunately, she disappears from the record as well. But it seems that... She just gets away with it, really, which I just find that she's done all this scandalous things, scandalous for the times against the Catholic Church, and she just seems to get away with it. There is a surviving fresco at the monastery, which is also called the Madonna of Sassau, which seems to depict the Virgin Mary with a young child Jesus walking that some have attributed to her. But it seems this has been dated to the 14th century rather than the 15th. But I just feel I needed to mention her. I wanted to challenge the the views of what a scandal is. So Johanka Kohanka, only because I would be Polish. I have to bring so. Oh no, wait, shit! I brought other Polish stuff into this before. <laughs> <laughs> shit! Like, no, I was trying to game for some people. It's like Salpi and his book on the shot one. Oh wait, Kit, how many shots you done? Aren't you supposed to be doing shots every time I bring Polish people into the conversation? Oh, good point. Yeah, yeah, you are. Yeah, you've done, oh, what, three two. times now? No, no, two. no, two. Okay. Two. Two shots. Oh, and I'll make sure I try and get one in when Marcus starts oh, okay. talking, Dorman starts talking. <laughs> or something. Yeah, um, James, are you the bullshitter this week? Nope. Oh, are you calling him out? Maybe. I might be. How do you... We got a bullshitter this week. We have got a bullshitter this week. Oh, shit. <laughs> Holmes, what did you make of this? Yeah, it was okay. I was, what was she tried for? I mean, I get, I get the hitting monks bit. What I didn't understand, if she was that annoying, or contrary to their beliefs, why they just didn't kick her out in the first place? Uh, yeah, it's really weird. It just seems she was that useful around because there was that many wounded. Because there was also construction work going on at the monastery at the time as well, and construction in those days you had a lot of accidents and there was only like one or two monks because there's two monks mentioned uh nicomidas and elias which is supposed to be the healers for the monks but it just seems there were that many people they needed to heal that they just couldn't get rid of her i mean if, if the monastery has only two monks in it it's going to be quite small no 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 there were two monks that were healers the rest of the monks okay so was she was she tried for having the affair with Baron Sebastian. It Mastro. seems to have been part of her trial. She was officially tried for heresy, and probably the adultery came under that as well as, as it happened in the monastery. Uh, you did mention utter the phrase "doing the monks" when you were. Yes, that that seems that to have been mentioned um, in the 
in the well the records that survive in one of the variants of the story that she was doing two of the monks as well right okay let's move on to our next one uh who have we got left we've got marcus kit and is that and dorman left yeah let's go I, I, you know, I'm purposely going to just let Marcus carry on drinking for a bit longer before we get him to talk because he just gets more and more perverted and outrageous the more he drinks and it's hilarious. So let's go to Dorman. And he's not allowed to enlarge accent for the whole of this because he's banned that. Uh, <laughs> right. Um, this is well prepared, well researched and absolutely not off the cuff in any way. Um, so obviously we're in Ireland, at least at first. And in the same way that scandal can have many meanings, this isn't necessarily particularly perverse or sexual in any nature. Uh, this is something we haven't had in a while on the podcast, which is pirates. Um, this Whoa. is, uh, we're going to have mm. the story of Anne Bonny, uh, the redhead pirate queen of Ireland. That's so, another one on Kit's bingo list of scandalous women, isn't it? Yay! Yeah. Yeah. Yes, it was. Um, <laughs> it's not original, but it's good. So, she was born in 1697-ish, either 1697 or 1700s, bearing on when you read, in Cork, but we're not going to hold that against her. Um, however, her family thankfully did realise that raising someone in Cork is a terrible decision and instead moved her to Carolina. Um, you can, However, you can take the girl out of Cork, but you can't take the Cork out of the girl. Don't go there. That is not behave. And... At the age of 13, she killed a servant with a knife. This is her first sort of dash with violence. Um, she was married very young to a sailor named James Bonney in a desperate bid to undermine her father's love for her. And it worked because she did not approve of this marriage at all. And she was kicked out of the house with James Bonney, who might have been dabbling in pirate- piracy already. Um, in response to this, and Bonnie and her husband set fire to her father's plantation, made him homeless, and then moved with her husband to Nassau, which was a pirate capital of the Caribbean. Um, I'm sure pirate historians here are loving this terrible recanting. Um, the Bonnies didn't really have a happy marriage, as James was a narc. Um, he used to rat out pirates to um, the governor, who uh, Governor Rhodes or Rogers, who would come in and uh, was attempting to crack down on piracy. And Bonnie really wasn't impressed because she quite admired the pirate lifestyle and wanted to get involved in it. She grew particularly attached to a man known as Calico Jack or John Rackham. And they began to have something of a relationship. Uh, Things got sexual and Calico Jack offered, in quite a gentlemanly move, offered to pay uh, James Bonnie to take her wife, take his wife off his hands and she would become married to Calico Jack. Amazingly, James didn't take too kindly to this and threatened to beat up Calico Jack. So Anne and Jack decided, sob this, we're going to go pirating and they eloped. So they sailed into the Caribbean. Uh, She was disguised as a boy whose nickname was Andy. Um, (laughs) And she, and there was another woman, uh, part of the crew as well, called Mary Reed. So there was two women and Calico Jack. They were the only ones that knew that uh, Anne Bonny was a, a woman. So several years of gallivanting in the Caribbean ensued, much of which is quite poorly documented. The sourcing on her is not great. Eventually, she is captured off the coast of Jamaica in a frantically, 
it's it's a pretty hilarious incident where the entire crew are so paralytically drunk that when the Royal Navy turn up, they just kind of arrest them all because they're all too drunk to fight. Um, they're taken to Jamaica and Reed, Calico and uh, Bonnie were all sentenced to death. However, Mary Reed and Anne Bonnie, just as soon as they were on trial, just said, you can't kill us, we're pregnant. No way to prove it. So they were allowed to live. They were, <laughs> they were put back in prison. Her husband had no such excuse. Uh, and Calico Jack was killed. And supposedly Anne Bonnie's last words to her husband were, had you fought like a man, you would not be hanging like a dog. So clearly she wasn't too impressed with his efforts in the battle beforehand. So we have a woman here who rebelled from her dad, ran away with a pirate, ran away with another pirate, got away with it, gave two fingers to the law and two fingers to her husband who didn't fight hard enough. So I think on the whole, that kind of ticks all the boxes for a scandalous. And she's Irish and she had red hair. So really, we're winning. <laughs> no, absolutely. And like we said, she was on Kit's bingo list of um, scandalous women. So not surprised that she came up. It's a good shout. Alina, lesbian pirates. Lesbian. I, I, I don't know what to really say here because lesbian pirates. This sounds pretty cool. Still not up there, though. There's not enough. Marcus to... likes the idea of dabbling in piracy. Piracy yeah, is dabbling. It's like the weekend option. Speaking <laughs> as like a guy in the TA, is it is it like optional? Can we just like dabble in soldiering, dabble in piracy? Exactly, I think you're talking, yeah. Marcus but, is talking about music piracy, though, isn't he? That's yeah. Oh yeah. <laughs> I, I, I thought he was on about movie piracy. But we okay. sail the seas of LimeWire. That's what we do. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> oh, LimeWire. <laughs> oh, just to make everyone feel old, I, I mentioned LimeWire in a conversation with um. I was having a video chat with my two sisters the other day and my youngest sister is 12 years younger than me. And I mentioned LimeWire and my other sister, Megan, said, oh, yeah, LimeWire. And Martha, who's 15, she was like, what's LimeWire? What is what is that even? It just made me feel so old. Shut like, up, Martha. No one needs your, shut up. <laughs> your youth and vitality. Mm. Oh, Holmes, do you, <laughs> Holmes works in media rights. He doesn't even know what LimeWire is, do you, Holmes? No, never heard of it. Um, but I mean, to be fair, I had a similar experience with, at work where I'm one of the older ones when I mentioned the Fonz and everybody looks at me like I'm mad. To be honest. Doesn't Dyer work in particular with a load of young people that like don't know who David Bowie is and things? Uh, yeah, thing, things like that. But, you know, they'll learn. They'll learn. Um, I haven't got many questions on this. I, there's been, I'm always slightly suspicious when women are able to pass themselves off as blokes quite easily, which I, with, I imagine somewhat limited resources it, it it's easier than you'd think Holmes it's easier than you'd think speaking from experience <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but I think going back to whatever century it was 18th 19th 18th the best you're on, you're on the run so you've not you know there's not an array of fancy dress shops that you can go to makeup is slightly limited hard to come by yet as soon as you get on a boat nobody suspects okay I agree but at the same time it's a boat everyone has long hair anyway and you throw on enough baggy clothes and strap down your breasts and you know i, I imagine you could probably yeah, get away with it it's easier to pretend to be a bloke than it is for a bloke to pretend <laughs> to be a woman unless you're a japanese person who's had kinky sex then it's quite easy with the <laughs> <laughs> I mean, can we prove this or if you've got a, a kind of rubber head to pull over your head yes that also helps <laughs> which kit does <laughs> <laughs> He's now doing next week. Everyone's in drag. 
uh, which is quite disturbing. I do like that one. I like. I'm, I know you were taking the piss about not preparing in that, but that's a good shout. I like that. Uh, let's go to Kit of Sex Mountain. <laughs> mountain is that on my title now? So Kit of it Sex is, Mountain. Yeah. I, I can live with that actually. Um, so I've kind of gone similarly to Zach, um, but I've gone for China. And Washing the one and only Sir Xi, the Downjet Empress of China. And buckle in, everybody, this is a trip. Because if you think Agrippina is bad, this is Agrippina on steroids. Sir uh, Xi was a woman who rose to power through intrigue, ruled the most populous country on earth for half a century in scandal, declared war on the whole Western world, then destroyed a 2,000-year-old empire by accident. Um, so she was born Sing Shun in 1835 to a minor duke in China. She was about four foot 11. And when she was 17, she underwent basically the X factor for hotties and was selected to be one of the emperor's concubines. She was awarded various names as she moved through the ranks, but we're going to go with Sir Shi, which she got much later in life, which means joyous and harmonious. Uh, the emperor at the time was more into transvestites and women with really, really tiny feet. But Xerxes had skills that few others did. She could read and write, which she used to seduce his majesty. She literally slept her way to the top of the pile, producing the emperor's only son and living heir. And soon she began to give the emperor advice, which is a huge scandal. You're not supposed to tell the Chinese emperor what to do. The emperor had dementia. And when he lost the Second Opium War and the British and French burned down the summer palace, he became depressed and fell to his deathbed. Cersei already had such control over him that a council of eight men were established by the courts to shut her up in case the emperor died, which, of course, he did. This created a power vacuum as the heir, the Tongxi emperor, and I apologize for my pronunciations, by the way, was only five years old. So these eight regents fought for power with Cersei and another concubine, Xie An. Cersei uh, outmaneuvered them all. She got all of the generals, ministers and court lackeys who'd been let down by the regents and either bribed them or allured them so that she could stage a coup. As a demonstration of mercy, once she seized power, only three of the regents were killed. Together with Xie An, she now ruled China, the two empresses uh, known as the Western and Eastern Empresses. Uh, they controlled their son, the emperor, as a puppet. Everybody hated having two women in charge, but there was nothing they could do about it. Soon, using minor court gossip and intrigue, Sir Xi stripped the main men who'd helped her stage the coup of power and banished them. And at this point, the two empresses basically shake up 2,000 years of history. They reform the bureaucracy of China. But Sir Xi was always the real power, Xi An no more than a lackey. By the time Sir Xi's son, the emperor, came of age, he was pretty much so cowed by his mother, he spent his life intoxicated by women and opium. On one occasion, pushed by his courtiers, he tried his own political move, only to be publicly told off and humiliated by his mother, who demanded he revoke all of his edicts immediately. An unprecedented move. In 1875, the Tongxi emperor died, and his wife soon after. Either she literally starved herself to death in grief, or, more probably, was murdered by Sir Xi. This meant there was no line of succession. Now, the Chinese court actually had protocols for this. But Xerxes decided to completely ignore them and just declare a new ruler, appointing her four-year-old nephew Guan Xu to the throne. Uh, the boy was such a puppet, he was ordered to refer to Xerxes in public as a dear father to show who the real boss was. 
To the peasantry, she was now known simply as that evil old woman. Shortly after, Sir Anne died suddenly and mysteriously, and rumours soon abounded that Sir She had had her poisoned and yet another victim had fallen. Whether it was true or not, Sir She was now in complete control of China. She had zero qualms blackmailing, seducing or poisoning anybody who opposed her. And throughout all of this, she basically bled China dry, embezzling money and pissing it away on stupid things. Antiques, bullion, jewels, uh, the rebuilt summer palace. She openly mocked the court, taking money set aside for building a new navy and instead commissioning a giant boat made out of marble as a garden ornament. Um, She also shagged pretty much anything that moved. And apparently her favorite thing was to try and turn gay men straight. It was even alleged, although there's little evidence for it, that she wrote letters to try and seduce Oscar Wilde. One person she definitely did try it on with was the reporter Edmund Backhouse, who knew her as the old Buddha and described her thus. I took in my hands her abnormally large clitoris, pressed it towards my lips and performed a slow but steady friction, which increased its size. She graciously unveiled the mysteries of her swelling vulva and allowed me to fondle her breasts, which were those of a young married woman. Her skin was exquisitely scented with violet. Her shapely buttocks, pearly and large, were presented for my admiring contemplation. I felt for her a real libidinous passion, such as no woman has ever inspired in my pervert homosexual mind before nor since. She was 67 years old at the time. Anyway, we're nowhere near done. In 1898, sick of Guangzhou trying to stop her embezzling funds, she came out of retirement, staged a second coup and had the emperor imprisoned. Now ruling China again, in 1900, she supported the Boxer Rebellion, a peasant movement that had begun to attack all Westerners in the country. Realising that she had started a major international scandal and incident, she decided to go all in and declared war on the United States, Great Britain, Russia, France, Italy, Japan, Germany and Austria-Hungary at the same time. Unsurprisingly, she lost. She fled Peking, but not before rocking up to where Guangzhou was staying and ordering his favourite concubine be thrown down a well. And you can't keep a good schema down. In 1902, she returned to Peking and took power again for another six years, still struggling with Guangzhou. And this is where things go to pot, because in 1908, Guangzhou and his wife die, probably by arsenic poisoning on the orders of the 72-year-old Sir Shi, who was grooming a replacement. Unfortunately, the next day, Sir Shi died as well, either of natural causes or as a result of Guangzhou trying to kill her, either by poisoning her crab apples or, according to Backhouse, by getting a minister to shoot her three times in the chest. Either way, her 47 years of power plays, scheming and the simultaneous deaths of all major figures at court finished off imperial China. The Qing dynasty collapsed and with it, the country tore itself apart eventually leading to Alina's favourite, the world's largest and most powerful communist state. <laughs> Cheers for I that. I love it. Oh, I just, why did it always come back to a giant vulva with you, Kit? <laughs> who, who, who can say? Who can say? Uh, Chris is just beyond words. He literally, I think he basically had a stroke halfway through that when you started with the recounting of the oral sex. Um, a best Catholic schoolgirl just couldn't handle it either. Uh, Alina? I absolutely love her. She's, uh, she actually, if anybody's actually interested, Jung Chang has written a fantastic book about her. It uh, came out a couple of years ago. So if anybody wants to do any more reading, um, 
I haven't got any questions because she is just awesome. She brings down the Qing Dynasty and she's just a fucking badass, man. <laughs> An inept badass by the sounds of it. Oh, that's funny though. I love her and all the shit she stirs up. She literally, she is an Agrippina and I love her. And just the craziness for me is awesome. Yeah, I mean, I think to allow her back once is slightly unnecessary, but a third time, you know, you'd have got <laughs> some sort of checks and balances in place and have a rough idea of what she stood for around that time. Yeah, I mean, there, there probably should have been, but um, she was such a power player and and when I said she shook up the bureaucracy, I mean, she removed some of the, the punishment of death by a thousand cuts. Um, but she kind of had this weird anti-Western sentiment as well all the way through it. So she, at one point, she was almost going to buy eight ships from the Royal Navy, but she discovered that they came with Royal Navy sailors and wasn't interested in anymore. Um, so there's sort of, it goes to and fro with her. She wanted to have a railway and then she discovered it was going to be near the emperor's tombs and refused to allow it. Um, so she's kind of this interesting figure because occasionally she does reforms, occasionally she takes them back, but all the way through, it's just 47 years of scandal with her. How many deaths was she responsible for? Uh, it's, it's really, really hard to say because you've got to bear in mind that obviously China is huge. Um, when she took power, there was a rebellion going on at the time called the Taiping Rebellion or Taiping Rebellion, which was essentially the largest civil war in history. 25 million people died during it. And so it's, it's almost impossible to decide um who's who's right who's wrong how many people died um and uh, yeah just just can't put a number and then when she declared war what was it on america britain france italy yeah it was eight eight countries so america britain france uh russia italy japan germany and austria hungary did, did a war actually develop from that or was it just a declaration uh yes it was called the boxer rebellion um there's a movie called 55 days at peking starring charlton heston and david niven that's about it um, essentially, the uh, legations in, in Peking were put under siege by the boxers and then the Imperial Army, and several reliefs had to, to be sent. Um, Admiral Seymour sent 2,000 troops and was beaten back by the Chinese army, and then the Western powers just went all in. Um, but she actually had a, a reasonable army. I mean, she had Mauser rifles and things like that, so there was a full-scale uh, conflict that emerged, yes. It's... Uh... It's pretty epic. Part of me is a little bit heartbroken that you might have just trashed Clive. Because um, <laughs> he was so close. I think he was so close. Clive looks like he's sulking. I'm sorry, Clive. <laughs> he is sulking. Uh, right, okay, we've got one more. I'm expecting some high pervery because he's had three GNTs now. Marcus. <laughs> three doubles. Yeah. Uh, standard night. Thank you. Um, yeah. Blimey, standard's been high tonight, hasn't it? Um, Sex, cross-dressing, murder, war, strangulation, cock mutilation. Um, but I'm going to finish with Scandalous Woman with the Scandalous Lady W. Um, clues in the name, uh, though it was slightly rebranded for the film. And I'm really glad uh, Kit earlier mentioned Hallie Rubinold because she wrote the book on Lady Worsley. Uh, no relation to Lucy Worsley, I believe. Um, and that's not who I'm talking about. No, I'm talking about Lady Jane Fleming, Seymour Fleming. Um, she was the height of scandal in the Georgian, uh, Georgian era. And we've got to go to the Georgians for a real scandal because they are deep, deprived uh, perverts. But we, before we get to the Victorians when they're all admitting it and the Tudors where uh, it's not recorded, the Georgians have got a huge track record of this. 
Now, I was going to obviously do Pauline Bonaparte and stay well within lane because everyone knows I like Wellington and like bad-mouthing the Bonapartes. And it's quite possible that Pauline Bonaparte um, both seduced uh, Wellington and we know she posed for many paintings nude. But Lady Worsley is fascinating from tying in um, some modern themes. So she had a, a relatively standard life for an aristocratic lady at the beginning. She was married far too young to a, a wealthy aristocrat that she barely met down on the Isle of Wight um, for a huge dowry. Hey, hum, uh, that's what happened. However, it wasn't until she had her first child with him that life started to get far more interesting. He had the heir. And only a few years later, she suddenly ran off with a young captain from the, uh, the South Hampshire militia, of which her husband was the commanding officer of. Now that might seem on the surface quite straightforward. And when it went to court, it all started to come out. It turned out it wasn't just straight affair. What had actually been going on with was um, that what actually <laughs> happened with Lady Worsley was the husband was in on it. I don't know if we can just go with pure um, pervert these days. So I'm going to go. He was a huge fetishist. He got off on seeing his wife get off and not with him, but with the other men. So there's a fantastic cartoon of it in Maidstone Barracks, just up the road from where I'm sat now, that Lady Worsley, she was getting dressed and washed and was in all sorts of states of undress. And her husband would hoist men, especially her lovers, over the windowsill, the high windows, to watch her get naked. It's gone as far as thinking that he probably had a viewing slit and would be in the next room when they were getting down and dirty and would be getting his jollies off watching them get theirs. Um, that meant that when it came to divorce, now in the 1780s, women were basically property, unfortunately. This is uh, an unfortunate state of the law and one that I'm, doing, I'm not condoning, but this is where it starts to get quite interesting. So by running off with the young captain, the, he had done damage to the husbands because he has damaged the property. So they went to court. The judge did deem them guilty, but he brought in a wealth of witnesses, around 47 witnesses who claimed to be her lover. Uh, she was found guilty of adultery and the, more importantly for the time, the captain was found guilty of damaging the property of the husband. So he was allowed reparations. Now, her dowry was in the region of £50,000 then. So she is a very wealthy woman. The, da the damages were settled at a single shilling, therefore undermining all the process of her wealth and setting quite a good precedent for future divorces in um, in the era where at the time it'd been almost impossible for women to divorce their husbands. Uh, this set a really good way forwards for them. Uh, it meant, though, that all of it had to come out and there's now a wealth of papers around it. And it went all through uh, both the courts and society, making her one of the most scandalous. If you haven't seen... Uh, the film, Natalie Dormer, yes, she gets naked. Behold yourselves. However, more importantly than that, it's really worth looking. Lady Worsley had a portrait done of her in her lover's uniform 
um, it by Joshua Reynolds, which is a beautiful painting by one of Britain's uh, best portrait artists. And it's kind of a nod to her lover that she's going to be stood there riding out um, outfit, tailored a militia red coat uh, done. She managed to get um, a full reparations, basically. She managed to be allowed to retake her maiden name, uh, be allowed to move back in with her parents, and all the time basically giving two fingers up to her former husband, who was just a bit of a pervert down on the Isle of Wight. Uh, the house, unfortunately, went into disrepair and I think some damages, but Apple Durkham House on the Isle of Wight uh, does actually still exist. It's just a shell of a building. It's now a English Heritage Free Site tie-in, uh, and you can go visit it. Uh, but I really, really recommend you look at the Joshua Reynolds of uh, Lady Worsley, and as the book and the film goes, she is the scandalous Lady W. I like it. And just for clarification, Drunken Marcus, that's not Lucy Worsley. No, it wasn't Lucy Worsley. <laughs> no, no, no one ever said that. I don't know, I I don't know how you snack. managed to keep a straight face with Kit reenacting the whole story from behind a cushion <laughs> in an Airbnb in South Korea. Um, difficult. Fantastic. And obviously uh, trying to keep a straight face with drunken Beth's got her legs out again. So, well done for getting through that. Alina. <laughs> <laughs> but more importantly, because it's just transpiring in the chat, that, that Lockie, are you seriously drinking fucking Gordon's and Schweppes tonic? Yes, I am. There's no pandemic that's an excuse for that, you peasant. <laughs> what? There's a fine beverage. It's just, it's Three botanical totally organs. It's the legal bare minimum of a gin. It's a disgrace. Marcus, tell him. Well, there you are. Legally fine. Still counts. I mean, it's gin and it gets you drunk. And yeah. uh, what people can't see is that every time he's pouring, he's got the nice little bartender spout. He's doing a double, like, twist and turn, overarm, <laughs> wearing a white shirt, about three buttons undone, very handsome, very suave, just like James Bond, really. I'm, I'm the bartending equivalent of that poor kid who grows up in, you know, on the back streets, kicking a can around who turns into a Pele or something like that, basically, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I'm glad Go you didn't say Tom Cruise, because if you do watch Cocktail, you'll note that he spills shit all over the place, his stock <laughs> Would have been atrocious, and that uh, they edit out um, immediately. He's about to drop it. They cut and go somewhere else. And actually, so when he gives it that, oh, I learned to flare for three months, but bullshit, bullshit. <laughs> but five minutes before they started shooting, um, yeah, there's the one where he slides the glass along, and half the drink comes out. I'm telling you now, no customer would have that. They'd be like, uh, "Where's the rest of my drink?" Try again, mate. Anyway, Holmes, the scandalous Lucy Worsley. Yeah, um, I, I originally I thought initially it might be the bullshit because of the reference to an aristocrat on the Isle of Wight. I thought that doesn't necessarily ring true. But um, <laughs> I, I think most of the scandal doesn't involve Lady Worsley around this. So it's all to do with her husband, isn't it, really? Well, she has like um, 47, no, 48 lovers. So the one that she runs away with and 47 others whilst married in society, that's pretty scandalous for 17 Well, as a modern man and part of the urban metropolitan elite, that's just pop up half of the course these days, isn't it? Who are we to judge? Yeah, he lives in Collier's Wood. This is yeah. not, it's normal. Is that all at the same time? Sort of... <laughs> no, but they're... No, I don't mean all... in the same session. I mean, like... <laughs> I mean, that's just a Friday night in Bedford. Bed. 
Um, but, in my mind, I'd like them to be all in the same session and Clive could voice all 47 of them. <laughs> all 47 of them are Cockney Irish. Yeah. Tune in next week. And, and the husband's watching through the window, just to be sure, to be sure. Do, do we know that 47 is true, though? Or was the 47 number just invented by the husband? No, the 47 were the ones that came to trial and uh, basically gave witness that they were... Uh, but that's on the basis that no one has ever lied in a trial. Or the lawyer. How how many people just wanted shot of their wives and thought, well, if I just say I'm another one. <laughs> also, if she was really Chris crazy, is nodding furiously. <laughs> if she was as attractive as the story goes, how many of the lads are just going, yep, I hit that? <laughs> <laughs> Me, Natalie Dormer, yeah. <laughs> Right, okay, let's, we will, okay, so while the judges decide who's bullshitting and who the most scandalous woman is in history is, we will go around the room and find out who you would have gone for if you could. I was going to do Pope Joan because I was going to do a non-sex one, but it's just frankly, there's no point after Kit and his giant vulva and Clive's voices, there's no point in doing anything. Pope Joan uh, was the bird who was Pope and got busted when she accidentally gave birth in front of everybody and got stoned to death possibly, uh, but it's not going to win, so fuck it. Let's go around the room and find out who you would have gone for if you couldn't have your own Clive. I think the Duchess of Argyle is always a good one, isn't she? It just, yeah, I, she's so, uh, that, that's the most modern one we've done as well, mm. isn't it? She's like the closest one to our era. Um, but yeah, I just found her a bit sinister, if I'm honest. Charlie, what about you? Oh, I mean, it's... Extra points for being a film I've seen and extra, extra points for the Oscar-worthy performances of Mr. Clive O'Connell. Just Absolutely. epic. Marcus? He's too busy keeping his head down in case Lucy, Lucy Worsley is listening. <laughs> <laughs> oh, could he even hear us. Zach, what about you? I'm going to go with Dormans, actually. The Pirates. I, I kind of liked that one. Um, but I'm calling bullshit on James's. It just, it doesn't add up sorry james but nuns going into a monastery full of monks i mean there's a kind of fundamental problem there with no, um, she wasn't a nun that's the thing well, uh, she's a woman you know what i'm talking about don't be difficult man <laughs> i'm calling it bullshit you can't, you can't wheedle out of it it's bullshit that's i'm not having it kit i'm not having it um i love clive's voices um, I'm going to call bullshit on one of them because I've played a computer game called Kingdom Come Deliverance and it just sounds really familiar for some reason. Um, and um, I think my favourite is uh, Agrippina, without question. Love Agrippina. Kate, what about you? I liked uh, Dorma's Pirate. Yeah, it's pretty cool. And definitely call in, call in bullshit, James, sorry. Mm. <laughs> James, what about you? Um, I'm actually going to go with the Duchess of Argyle. Um, only because, Clive, I did like yours, but you also cost me our, uh, the uh, diseases one this week. So, uh, and I was definitely going to win that one. So, oh, yeah. spite, spite. So, yeah. <laughs> Beth, I've got to go with Clive this week. I had so much fun listening to him. But, yeah, I mean, it, in, originally I was going to go with Julie Daubigny, but Blocky got there first. Um but yeah, Clive's was just so, there was so much passion in the story. I was just, yeah, definitely my winner this week. Chris? Sure. I, I'm going to go with Clive as well, uh, mainly because, um, apart from it being a really awesome story, but if you uh, look at the reactions, uh, Beth is in hysterics. I'm having some kind of seizure. 
Um, so it managed to appeal to both poles of the story. Yeah, yeah there, there will be a screenshot of everybody's reaction uh, midway through that. Marcus? It was definitely going for Clive, mostly for the accents and the, uh, the cop cussing. I mean, he doesn't like a bit of cop cussing <laughs> down the pub. But seeing that Kate's now tweeted a photo of the Duchess, that, that changes things. And, you know, she, she looks scandalous. And I also think on definition, I don't know what Holmes' definition of this, but scandal... Far more society thing. It's a bit like reverse snobbery. We need to build you up to take you down. So, Duchess bake bedding seventeen year olds. Yeah, I'm gonna go with Kate. It's very well told as well. Uh, Lockie. <laughs> um, it is kind of tough to look past either either Duchess of Argyle or Cider Abbey. I'm gonna go with Cider Abbey. I think um, they're both pretty strong, um, but the cock cutting off and hanging on to is is a bit of a deal breaker I think <laughs> that makes her a winner in Lockie's eyes <laughs> right okay judges who was bullshitting go on um, Holmes yeah um, we think it's James oh James it turns yeah. out that despite a week of effort you, you're a shit liar as, as the night went on, I realised people were doing known choices and I thought, oh, God. <laughs> so, yeah, I'm the imposter now. among us. <laughs> and who's your winner? Uh, it's a unanimous decision this week. We have got different second and thirds. Do you want us to do those first? Yeah, go on then. I mean, I've gone for... My second is the Duchess of Argyle. I think that takes some beating. And actually, I went for Lockis for third because I thought it had a, a bit of everything. Alina, second and third. Um, I mean, I loved them all. I thought they was really great and I had a really hard time. We disagreed, but I've got my third is tied between um, Zach and Kit because I loved Oprah Peanut and uh, Sexy was amazing. I love, they're just too awesome. But my third, Lockie, she was awesome. I love Julie. She's <laughs> totally scandalous. She takes my second spot. So, Guys, put him out of his misery. Has he finally done it? No, it's Dorman. No, I'm kidding. Please say someone clips that. I uh, will go back and clip that exact moment where you like. <laughs> <laughs> oh, live. Congratulations. I want to go and post the dormant face at that moment. <laughs> <laughs> I'm really sorry. I'm so sorry. <laughs> that was the cruelest thing an English person ever Oh, <laughs> <laughs> it's 803 years now, damn it. Holmes, you've gone to fly. I think I think it's probably more for his delivery than his content, to be honest. But everything, everything, everything after that sort of faded a little bit. I feel like Leicester have won the league again. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. That's really flattering. I mean, I think there's an element as well that he'll finally stop bitching about the judges. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah. I can still bitch about Johnny. Yeah, yeah. Not me, true. though. No, Elena, I know it's because you were there. It needed a woman judge. There needs to be more, more gender diversity among the judging panel. Did you think this day would ever come, Clive? I didn't. I'd actually been telling people I didn't give a toss about winning. <laughs> Liar. And would you like to thank anyone? Do you want to do an acceptance speech? Oh, there, there are too many people to thank. Just too uh, many. But start with your wife. 
Yeah. <laughs> Don't worry, she's, she's not listening. The poor fellow who had his cock cut off needs a mention, doesn't he? <laughs> like, that's going to be that's interesting be... than your wife. Thanks, somebody else's wife. <laughs> that's going to be interesting when Clive goes back back into the main part of his house and says, "Great news, I won," and she'll be saying, "What? What was your story this week?" <laughs> <laughs> Just We've lying. got the DVD somewhere. Oh, outstanding, Clive. Congratulations. I Thank think you. we're we're all very, very pleased for you. Uh, does that mean, has everyone had a winner now? Has Lockie never had a winner? Is that the only person that hasn't? Oh, Lockie and Chris, who hasn't been around, and there's many of them. Right. And Marcus. And Marcus. Does that mean we're going to get a flood of very inaccurate accents for the next? (laughs) 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 Now now I know what it takes. Yeah. 87 voices next week. My my Welsh is coming out next week. You know, Churchill, the Hollywood years, that terrible spoof film where they they do the Cockney Irish. I love it. I love that. that (laughs) (laughs) I feel some screenshots might be necessary this week. Right, guys, thank you so much. Next week, we are doing history's worst idea. Nice broad one for you. So interpret that how you will. Uh, There will be a bullshitter again. Hopefully they won't just read out the plot to a computer game. Um, (laughs) (laughs) But yeah, so history's worst idea. And obviously make it funny as well. Nobody wants sad shit. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.